Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real Talk, Black Talk. Why haven't you learned anything? Last Friday in the United States, we celebrated Juneteenth, the day in 1865 when the news that slavery had ended reached Texas two and a half years after President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Many Americans probably did not learn this history in school. I didn't. But the protests that came together after George Floyd's killing in Minneapolis have brought attention to the way racism impacts every aspect of our society, including school curricula. This reexamination isn't just happening in the U.S., Lavinia Stennett is the founder of The Black Curriculum. It's an organization in the U.K. that creates lesson plans, runs student workshops and teacher trainings, and is also pushing for black history to be taught nationwide. Lavinia, thanks for being with us. What led you to start The Black Curriculum and the work of changing the way students are taught about black history in schools? In schools, currently, the teaching of black history is limited to Black History Month, which in the U.K. is in October. And what we see is I guess a lack of 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 narratives really around black people in Britain and that fundamentally is presenting a very false view of British history and um, because we know that black people have been here since Roman times so we're basically set up in the aim to teach it all year round. Your curriculum, uh, the black curriculum, what, what are some of the topics that you go into that you did not encounter at all when you were a student? Yeah, so I think there was a lot of things in my culture that I was aware of. So, for example, I'm from a Jamaican background. Every year we have Notting Hill Carnival. At home we would play, like, reggae music. And so there were certain introductions in my personal life that I knew in terms of, like, my history, where it came from. But in terms of um, learning it at school, there was no kind of, like, introduction to that at all. In Britain, um, we have one of the largest street parties in Europe, and that was created by a black woman called Claudia Jones, who was um, from the Caribbean and brought this to Britain. And I think we can enjoy these things today, but we don't really understand the context behind it. And that's what our syllabus is about. It's, it's about bridging history with contemporary themes today. I'm just curious, what reaction has the black curriculum gotten from any range of students, black, white, any ethnicity? What are you seeing? Across ethnicities and cultures, it's been the same. Like, there's just a firm belief that they've missed out on this and it's a disservice and they actually feel really um what's the word they feel really really excited by learning something like this because I guess when you're confronted with new knowledge it can make you uncomfortable um but at the same time if you're learning about your own identity and your own culture I think it's really powerful um and we've seen students literally literally tell us like I know more about my history and my culture and it's a shame that this was hidden from me and I want to do more. I remember back in September when we ran one of our first pilot workshops, a young boy came back to us and said that he started his own Black British book club um, following on from our teaching. So it's been really positive. I know you're also pushing for Black British history to be a nationwide requirement in the UK, but I gather that just today you received some disappointing news from the government. What did they tell you? 
what we were asking for from them is that black history needs to be an explicit and integral part of the curriculum because at the moment there are no clear examples of black history and that feeds into the lack of teaching of it um so the response basically said that you know teachers have the flexibility to do what they want and um yeah black history can be woven with the freedom that schools have but again that just takes us back to why we're doing what we're doing. It's really important that black history is not seen as an addition, but it's an integral part of our culture. It's British history. It's not just for black people. And it's not just about black people. It's about the nation and the future of Britain as well. So with the killing of George Floyd and the world bringing a lot of attention to racial justice and inequality right now, how much momentum do you think there is uh, for changing the way history is taught in schools on an institutional nationwide level? I mean, do you think that momentum is still there despite what you heard from the government today? I think people will never forget it. I really do. I really think that this was such a key moment within world-like experiences that it really left an imprint on us about how black lives are treated globally. And I think it's so vital um, that the momentum that we have at the moment is sustained by long-lasting policy change. So I feel like there is a momentum, but it just it, there needs to be more of a willingness from governments, from um, you know people in places of power, to make sure that these these lasting changes stay. Lavinia Stennett is the founder of the Black Curriculum, an initiative to expand the teaching of Black history in British schools. Lavinia, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you. I heard people talk about anger on on the Saturday program, and then I was just thinking about that incident. And um, what I've been doing since that day is listening to um, specific music like uh, Fela Kuti, Bob Marley. I might listen to um, old, old programs of Dr. Wilson, uh Neely Fuller, uh, The Cows. Um, and also, I've been listening to motivational speakers. I think one is called, uh, one of the guys is Eric Thomas, a black guy. And another guy, a black guy, is uh, Les Brown. And that's been helping me out a lot. Um, like they, they still make like jungle noises and do weird things, but everything that I've been doing, um, and then along with um, working out, thanks to Emmy, I started working out again. You can learn a lot by taking a walk. Over the past decade, a black women's health organization called Girl Trek has organized walking teams in hundreds of cities and towns across the country. Members have retraced Harriet Tubman's path to freedom and the routes walked by women during the bus boycotts of the 1950s. While social distancing is in effect, they're lacing up their sneakers and heading out again, this time on a new journey that connects black women with history and each other. Alison McKay brings us their story. As Irisha Pikett sets out on her daily walks, she pops in her earbuds and she's connected with tens of thousands of other black women. I could be taking my walk in Philadelphia and with one hashtag, I'm connected to women who are doing these walks all over. That hashtag is Black History Boot Camp, a 21-day walking meditation to honor the foremothers of black women's history. It's led by Girl Trek, the nation's largest health organization for black women and girls. Here's a bit of what it sounds like. Welcome, sisters. My name is Morgan Dixon. This is my dear friend, Vanessa Garrison. We invite you today to Black History Boot Camp, which is a walk in the footsteps of the women who walked before us. It is an acknowledgement that we walk in the footsteps of women who made a way out of no way and that we have a blueprint for self-care and survival like no other. And we intend to claim that legacy. Every weekday morning, Girl Trek sends out an email with the story of a freedom fighter. The email includes playlists, meditation prompts, and a phone number. As women walk, they can call into a live discussion like this one about the poet and activist Audre Lorde. 
We better start to spend time with ourselves. And then we better start to ask ourselves, where do we fit in, not just individually with my care, but how does my care fit in with this collective and how do we advance it together? That is, I believe, how we honor Andre Lord's kind of radical self-care moment. I'm going to take care of myself so that I can also get in the fight. In New Jersey, Valerie Francois and her daughter are listening to Audre Lorde's story together. I was just really curious to hear about how she resonated with the movement and how she took care of herself, because I was very emotional about what was happening, not just with the pandemic, but then how it rolled into the racial issues being at the forefront again and the police brutality. And I thought this could really overwhelm me. Valerie's daughter, Victoria, says she was moved to seek out more of Lord's writings. I took it upon myself to read The Uses of Anger, which is one of her pieces that really helped me just try to process all the feelings that I was having. In Atlanta, Erica Sutton says she finds hope in the stories of Black women of past generations and how they endured. You're able to personally connect with their struggle, with their form of resilience, with their form of resistancing. This is what we're going to do to continue to fight and sustain. And it just gives me such an inspiring sense of motivation. Girl Trek's co-founder Morgan Dixon says walking has proven health benefits, but that's only one component of the organization's overall wellness mission. We're not walking enthusiasts. The reason we chose walking is because we look to our history to figure out what has been the most effective way that Black women have organized. And the most effective way that we've organized is in our everyday lives, is to create a lifestyle out of social change. We knew that when women walked and talked together, everything changed. Girl Trek says Black History Boot Camp started out with about 20,000 signups. In the past two weeks, it's grown to nearly 95,000. For NPR News, I'm Allison McCabe. Did you say you saw someone steal a police horse this week? I'll send you the video, Gus. I sent it to the firefighter. All-time classic. All-time. It, it, it might have stopped when they pulled Reggie Barry out the car and Reggie Barry out the car. I mean, this was a... I'm going to send this to you. His brothers had his black towel fist, and they like, where did you get the police? They stole him. Oh, come on. I'm wounded. I'm wounded. I'm wounded. I'm totally wounded. That's Chicago. Uh, Gus, I just want to report that that, that stealing the cowboy, uh, stealing the horse uh, was a false report. The guy who was uh, videotaped, he actually owned that horse. And he was falsely accused of stealing a police horse. And basically got his car spray uh, paint uh, spray painted saying, "Return the horse." <laughs> yeah, so that was a false report. I can't do it. Facebook groups are ripe targets for bad actors, for people who want to spread misleading, wrong, or dangerous information. So warns Nina Jankowitz. She's the disinformation fellow at the Wilson Center. And in a recent opinion column in Wired magazine, she and a co-author write that the company's so-called pivot to privacy, Facebook's promise to protect sensitive user information, did little to combat the spread of misinformation. Instead, Facebook encouraged users to join its groups, which are private pages for users with similar interests. We want to note here that Facebook is among NPR's recent financial supporters. Nina Jankowitz is here with us now. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Sarah. So make the case. Why, as you write, are Facebook groups destroying America? 
Well, the most important thing to understand is that disinformation runs on emotion and groups are highly emotional spaces. Um, over time, the moderators of groups use the community that they build there um, to create a sense of trust. And in many cases, people use it for a lot of great things. But in some cases, these are really polarizing environments where not only are people getting content that is really indoctrinating there, we're seeing some white supremacist content there. We're seeing the Obamagate conspiracy spreading through groups. So you join one group, then you'll be suggested to join another group. So it's, it's a really difficult problem to solve because at the core of this is Facebook's business model. It wants you to spend more time on the platform, more engagement. And if that engagement is serving you more divisive content, it's going to keep doing that. Remind us, if you would, what's the difference between these Facebook groups and the way the rest of Facebook works? And what makes them so susceptible, as you say, to disinformation? So after the 2016 election, Facebook really wanted to make uh, the platform a little bit more like your digital living room and not the digital public square. It, it surfaced more content from friends and family and groups were a big part of that strategy. Rather than seeing content from pages, which you know media outlets, brands, uh, celebrities have, it was surfacing more of that friends and family content. It's a real problem though. Basically, these are spaces that are, they don't have the same amount of oversight as other spaces. They are moderated by uh, group moderators and Facebook does look at them, but they can also be private and secret, which means that bad actors can target people who are going to be most vulnerable. You write about the dangers of Facebook groups. Now, not everybody's on Facebook. Not everybody's in groups. There's a whole universe of social media out there where false and inflammatory content is also spreading. Why focus on this? The reason that my co-author and I decided to focus on groups is because it has been the primary vector of disinformation on Facebook uh, for the past several years. And I think it is kind of a sleeping giant. People don't realize because of the community and the trust that is endemic to groups that they might be being played. And I think it's really important to raise awareness about that, especially as we head into the election. We need to have our guards up right now. So what changes does Facebook need to make? We think it's really important that Facebook show how groups are connected because often uh, one group moderator will control several groups that are sharing similar uh, divisive or straight up disinformation content. And users deserve to know that. And after a certain point, Groups aren't really private spaces anymore if they have tens or hundreds of thousands of, or, of members. So we're suggesting that Facebook not allow groups to be private or secret over a certain threshold, say 5,000 members. So I think the bottom line is more transparency. I think the most important thing is to arm users with information so that they can navigate this information flow during these very confusing times. That's Nina Jankowitz with the Wilson Center. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. You know, first ladies usually have a cause, and you've already said you're interested in speaking out against bullying on social media. I think it's very important because a lot of uh, children and teenagers are getting hurt, and we need to teach them how to talk to each other, how to treat each other, and uh, to, to be able to connect with each other on the right way. It's an ironic choice, since her own husband sent out a stream of pretty nasty tweets during the campaign. All of this is happening as the president is also stirring up some new controversy on social media as well. What more can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, that's right. Overnight Twitter posted a warning label on another tweet from President Trump, this time calling it manipulated media, basically that it's designed to mislead. The clip posted by the president shows a viral video. There it is of those two toddlers, one black, the other white, hugging. You may have seen this one before. But in this new version, it's layered with ominous music and a fake CNN graphic that reads racist baby, probably a Trump voter. The original real story from last year was about a friendship between the two toddlers. And it comes the very same day that Facebook removed a series of Trump campaign ads that featured an upside-down red triangle, a symbol used by the Nazis to identify political prisoners during World War II. Facebook said that those ads violated the company's policy against organized hate. The campaign insists it was using the ads to target Antifa, those anti-fascist protesters the president has blamed for violence and rioting during recent protests. Craig. Peter Alexander at the White House Force. Peter, thank you. The watch, the watch, the watch, the watch, the watch, the watch, the watch. I know you got your eyes on me. I feel you watching me. But it ain't hard to see that you can't see me. You try, but what you think you saw ain't what you thought you saw. You better We all know by now that companies collect data from our internet searches or the apps we use on our phones, and that they use that information to send us ads and other messages. But now we report that political groups have been using a similar tactic called geofencing, and they've been applying it to people protesting the killing of George Floyd. Our reporter, Patience Hagen, has been looking into this, and she joins us now. Patience, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. So, Patience, what is geofencing exactly, and how are political groups using it to target protesters? Geofencing is a technique where they can basically get the unique identifier for every phone that was in a given area at a given time. And advertisers use this to, to target, you know, people who attended a concert or people, even just people who are at a mall on a given day. It's finally getting used in politics. Uh, and it was actually expected to be a really big factor this campaign season with people geofencing rallies to reach out and make sure their supporters vote. And also just to, to figure out where their typical voter goes on a daily basis and reach people like them. Since the pandemic uh, basically is keeping everyone in their homes, that strategy has been completely flipped over. It's been completely overturned and suddenly campaigns are find themselves pretty starved of that location data they thought was going to be so important. So now that people are, are showing up at these rallies, which says a lot about what's important to them, that data is becoming very, very valuable. And political campaigns on both sides of the aisle really want to know who's attending these rallies and they really want to reach those voters. So you just said both sides of the aisle. These aren't people that are specifically targeting Democrats or Republicans. It's both. That's right. We know that groups on both sides of the aisle are interested in this data. They might be using it for audiences they think are persuadable to a certain cause. You know, in some cases, it's their their attendance at the protest signals their support for a certain cause. That's pretty clear. In some cases, it's who might be persuadable to a cause. Uh, there might be ways to... Um, 
to know which voters to exclude from your your ad campaign. The Collective, a political action committee that works to elect African-Americans to office, is using this data to reach people who attended these protests that have occurred across the country since George Floyd died. They're using that to, um, to target those people and hit them with messages about turning out to vote in November or about registering to vote. Are there any concerns that people could be using it kind of in more nefarious ways? Yes, there is. Uh, some experts are concerned that it could be used to even re-identifying the people who attended the protest uh, and maybe leading to harassing them in some way. Others are, are concerned that it could be used for some kind of voter suppression. For instance, reaching out to people who attended these protests, if there's a group that doesn't want them to vote, uh, that group might target them with misinformation about how to register to vote or how to vote uh, and maybe engage in other voter suppression tactics. Some people are Some people are very uncomfortable with the idea that uh, you know, there's this surveillance going on. There's commercially available data that indicates who's attended a protest. Uh, and it, it might be, a, you know, a protest where people are getting arrested and where law enforcement believed people were getting out of line. They might be uncomfortable with that data being commercially available to prove that they attended it. Yeah. I mean, I guess the question of a pushback against this technology, you talked to some of these companies that collect this data as well, didn't you? That's right, we do. Uh, they're saying that requests are coming from both sides of the aisle, from both left-wing and right-wing causes. Some some companies that provide this data are refusing to provide it if it's relevant for the protests. If the ad buyer is asking for like the date and location of a protest, some companies like Xmode Social are refusing to provide it. And what are they saying about requests that they're getting? Uh, they believe that it could bring harm on the on the users. They they said we want to protect the data of those who are fighting for against racial inequality. So people who are concerned about their location data being caught up if they're out in rallies, is there anything that they can do to kind of opt out? One way would be to restrict location services on your phone. For instance, in most in most cases, this data is being collected through apps. Uh, that you might have downloaded for some other purpose, but you give them access to your location. For example, an app that tells you the weather, there might be a good reason to give it access to your location. In many cases, those apps resell the data. So if you, for example, if you shut off location services to all apps on your phone, or if you limit it only to a few very specific apps, that would be one way of avoiding this kind of tracking. Can you do that selectively, like before you go into a big rally or a protest if you don't want that data be, to be used for that? Yes, you can. You can turn it off for a few hours, turn it back on when you're, when you're back at home. Okay. Our reporter, Patience Hagen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. You got to fight! As the U.S. opens back up, coronavirus clusters are popping up all over the country. A cluster is where multiple people contract the disease at the same event or location. Health officials are scrambling to identify those clusters so they can get in touch with people exposed to the virus who might need to get tested. To hear how those efforts are going and what we're learning from them, we are joined now by Erica Lautenbach. She's director of the Whatcom County Health Department in the northwest corner of Washington State. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Ari. So Whatcom County and Washington State are not seeing the spike in cases that other parts of the country are experiencing, but you are seeing an increase. What have you learned about who in your area is getting COVID-19 right now? 
Sure. We're definitely seeing an increase in Whatcom County, and we have seen almost a near flip in the cases that we're experiencing. So in April of this year, we were really struggling with long-term care outbreaks. So about three out of four people were over the age of 30 and really pretty heavily skewed to uh, 60 plus. And by contrast, in June, we're seeing that now two out of three people that have contracted the disease are under 29. Hmm. Does the fact that young people tend to be getting this mean that people are going to have a better chance of surviving the disease now since it tends to be worse for older people? I would say yes and no. The concern is that because these younger people are having uh, more mild symptoms, They are going to work sick, they are visiting with their parents and grandparents sick, and they're continuing to go to social events where they expose more and more people. So when we think about that web of spread, that web just grows and grows and grows. Can you give us an example of a cluster you've identified and and how you traced the cases that arose from it? So we found in our investigations in early June that there was a party with somewhere between 100 and 150 people um, outside. And from our investigations, we identified that 14 cases were associated with that party. And subsequently, an additional 15 cases were associated with those initial cases. So that one event spread to 29 people and 31 related employers. And just to clarify, how much farther do you trace it after that? I mean, presumably, at least one of those second or third tier infections would lead to a fourth or fifth tier infection. Yes, and that's our challenge is to continue to to trace uh, as this as this moves through families, as it moves through workplaces, as it moves through additional social events as well. There's been a lot of concern over whether racial justice protests could spread the virus. Um, did you have those gatherings in Whatcom County? And if so, what did you see? Yeah, we did have a rally in Bellingham, which is our, our county seat, and there was also a protest. And we have not been able to connect a single case to that rally or to the protest. And what we're finding is in large part, that's due to the use of masks. Almost everyone at the rally was wearing a mask. And it's really a testament to how effective masks are in preventing um, the spread of this disease. It's incredible that there hasn't been a single case traced back there. Yeah, it's actually surprising for us as we continue to investigate new cases. We're finding that the social events and gatherings, these parties where people aren't wearing masks, are our primary source of infection. And then the secondary source of infection is workplace settings. There were 31 related employers just associated with that one party because of the number of people that brought that to their workplace. So for us, for a community our size, that's a a pretty massive spread. Erica Lautenbach is director of the Whatcom County Health Department in Washington State, and we appreciate your talking with us today. Thank you. Thanks. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. More businesses and public spaces are opening this week in California, and a new rule requires that everyone wear masks while out in public. It's a mandate that has become increasingly politicized. California Surgeon General and author of The Deepest Well, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, joins us now for more. Welcome to Here and Now. Thank you so much for having me. 
So, Doctor, California is seeing a surge in COVID nineteen hospitalizations, and now、um, folks are being asked to wear masks at all times in public places. That's controversial for some.、Um, how is California hoping to enforce this, but also address people who see the mandatory mask as an encroachment on their rights? Yeah. So. I think that what we're seeing in terms of the mandatory mass at this point is that the goal of this is really around protecting Californians and protecting their health, right?、Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is that is really the the key factor here, and that's the thing that we're trying to, as we are opening back up as a state, as we are considering, you know, how. We can get back to economic activity and all of that piece. How do we do this in the safest way possible? In the past two months, California has seen、uh, seven top public health officials resign after facing harassment over recommending the use of masks and other measures. What do you make of this, and how can California battle COVID nineteen、um, if it keeps losing public health officials? I will have to say that being a public health official right now is really hard. Our public health officers、uh, all across the state are working incredible hours, and it's a really difficult time. And I think that it's really unfortunate that so many public health officers are facing harassment when they're really showing up to、uh, try to protect the health and safety of everyday Californians. I can imagine this is a conundrum, though, because their jobs are extremely important, and yet you're losing them in the state. What can be done to mitigate, and what what are you asking the public when it comes to this? I think there's just the push and pull of people who feel like it's an infringement on their rights,、uh, with those who really understand the health implications of of not protecting themselves. Yeah, I think we see a lot of ways in which the response to the COVID pandemic has been unfortunately politicized, and what we recognize is that,、uh, you know, the public health guidelines is not about politics; it's about public health and safety, right? It's about trying to reduce、uh, disease and death, and it's also about taking a smart approach to、uh, moving forward with balancing. Uh, being able to open up our state, right, so that we can restore economic activity with the public health and safety. So,、uh, from that standpoint, I think you know one of the things that I think that we can ask Californians is for a recognition that we all have an important role to play. We all、uh, can do our part. By following public health guidelines, by practicing social distancing, by、uh, you know wearing a face covering, and doing these things that help to keep our friends and our neighbors safe.、Mm-hmm. Of course, California is not just battling COVID nineteen, but like the rest of the country, grappling with the death of George Floyd and racism.、Uh, you recently wrote an article entitled "George Floyd's Death Is Killing Me," in which you outline the two pandemics we're battling. Uh, which includes systemic racism as well as COVID nineteen. You see a through line and a connection between the protests happening and the disproportionate effect、uh, that COVID nineteen is having on Black communities. Can you say more about how the two are connected, from your view? Absolutely. I have spent my career as a pediatrician, a scientist, a researcher, 
on a biological process known as the toxic stress response. And what we understand is that when individuals are exposed to repeated threats, and particularly during critical stages of development, that it can actually, you know, these threats activate our biological stress response. And when that biological stress response is activated too frequently, too severely, that it can lead to changes in the way our stress response functions and actually can lead to changes in our immune system, our brain development, our hormonal system. And this is what scientists are now referring to as the toxic stress response. What we see is that racism is a risk factor for developing the toxic stress response. And um, that's why I say that it's no coincidence as we're seeing the COVID-19 pandemic, right? That we are seeing black and brown folks dying at a higher rate And uh, as we are seeing right now with the, the protests against racial injustice, these things are connected. The ways in which black and brown folks are dying of racism are captured in a powerful and undeniable way in the video of George Floyd's death. But they're also captured in the numbers of disparities that we are seeing in deaths from COVID-19 as a result of the impacts of racism on health. You know, we've really just recently been talking about this. I'm thinking about uh, the conversations and the, the the deep reporting that's been happening about uh, maternal health outcomes for women of color. But what you just said there, people are dying of racism. What policies can be implemented now that address that racial inequity uh, that is now rendered so clear by COVID-19? Well, I think what we need to see are anti-racist policies that go across the board from our housing policies to, you know, all the way across. It's really going to take us time to really implement Uh, For myself as California Surgeon General, one of the efforts that I have been um, proud to lead is an effort called ACEs Aware to help primary care clinicians across the state of California understand how to recognize and address the toxic stress response clinically so that we can look at improving health outcomes for individuals at risk for toxic stress. So ACEs Aware was just launched in January of 2020. What will be your measures of success? How how would you uh, define success? And how many years down the line do you you believe we will start to see the outcomes of this type of action? Well, as a researcher and a scientist, I'm always <laughs> uh, looking at multiple measures, right? I'm a, I'm a total data geek, so I'm looking at data all the time. And uh, there are multiple measures of success. I think the one measure of success is how many of our clinicians actually take this ACEs Aware training and become trauma-informed in their clinical practice. That's Mm -hmm. a really important measure. Another measure is patient experience, patient satisfaction, provider satisfaction, provider experiences. But ultimately, what we're driving to is improved health outcomes. You know, doctor, as we're talking, I'm also thinking about my children. Uh, I worry about the generational trauma of racism 
and how that will impact them, but also how their own experiences and reactions to global protests might weigh on them. I mean, in our house, we talk about race and racism all the time, especially now. But how would you recommend we strike that balance of allowing them to be children, so to speak, but also keeping in mind that racism is a health issue? Absolutely. I think um, as a as a mother, as a as a parent of four black boys, we're having this ho- this conversation in my household quite a bit. And mm-hmm. um, one of the things that I do when I'm talking to our kids about it is, uh, you know, we're having these conversations about what we're seeing, about the protests, about racism, about what that means, and then also sharing around helping to make meaning of this moment, helping to make meaning of these protests, right? That hopefully that these protests are uh, in service of getting to a better place and also helping our kids recognize how they can participate positively in the change. And even Mm -hmm. if it's just the, you know, my four-year-old and my eight-year-old painting signs that say Black Lives Matter, right, Mm -hmm. Um, that we put in our front yard, right, that's them having an opportunity to be part of the struggle. And I think that it's important for our kids in this moment, not only to uh, make meaning of what's going on, but also recognizing how they can participate affirmatively. Because... Otherwise, it can fe- it can just feel scary. I think with both with COVID nineteen and with mm-hmm. um, the protests against racial injustice, it can feel really scary for kids. And I think as a parent, one of the things I see that's really important and part of my role is to help them understand how do we make it through difficult moments, right? Like how do we show up and what do we how do we care for ourselves, and then how do we uh, be part of the solution. That's Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, California Surgeon General. Doctor, thank you so much. Thank you. Can you, can you give us your credentials uh, one time just so we can be very clear about uh, how much studying has gone into your work? Well, I am a, a graduate of Howard University Medical School. That's four years of study. Uh, internship at Cook County Hospital Chicago, that's one year. Three-year residency in general psychiatry at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, Washington, D.C. Two years of fellowship at Children's Hospital in Washington, D.C. in child psychiatry. And I have been a practicing psychiatrist since 1967. And I've been a professor at Howard University College of Medicine, assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics. African Americans make up more than 13% of the U.S. population, yet only 5% of American physicians are black. That lack of representation is not only a problem within medicine, it also perpetuates a sense that medical and mental health care is not of or for the black community. NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports on the experience of young African American physicians about where they see challenges for those in training now. Growing up near Washington, D.C., Danielle Hairston had models for what she calls Black excellence. I had the example of a Black woman pediatrician, and so it never occurred to me like I couldn't become a doctor. Hairston is now the director of psychiatry residency at Howard University, educating young Black doctors herself. 
but she's routinely questioned about her rightful place there, like one white woman who saw her badge. And she's yelling, like, you're a doctor? Oh, my God, you? You? Hairston says this type of reception is routine among black colleagues. They're questioned entering the physician's lounge in elevators. One of Hairston's white colleagues ignored her at a patient's bedside. He's like, oh, well, the psychiatrist will be here to speak to you soon. And I was like, I'm right here. And he's like, oh, my gosh, like, I thought you were the sitter. And he's like, oh, my God, I don't know why I said that. And I was like, oh, it's because I'm black. And I don't even necessarily think that he's racist. It's just that that's the bias. Institutions everywhere are confronting the impacts of racism and inequity that persist in their system. Medicine is no different. Lack of access isn't just a problem for black patients who continue to face economic and social barriers to care. The gaps are evident in the profession itself. Black physicians remain in a disproportionately small minority, and many say that's because medical training itself alienates them, perpetuating those gaps. And those gaps, says Harrison, have real impact on the care patients receive. If you're ignoring this part of their experience, if you're not understanding the impact of being Black on them in this country and on their mental health, you're doing a disservice to them. And I don't know how you can treat them effectively. Alpha Stewart agrees. She became the first Black president of the American Psychiatric Association two years ago. She trained in the late 1970s in Philadelphia. She considered herself lucky. She had black mentors who helped shepherd her and teach her about the needs of the African-American community. I know residents who don't even have that even today in 2020. So it was for Anthony Chin Kui, who is black. He finished his training as an ear, nose and throat surgeon four years ago. The number of black men in medicine is very, very small. The number of black men in surgery is orders of magnitude smaller. And the number of black men in specialized surgeries like ENT is tiny, tiny. Chin Kui says mistreatment came shrouded in subtlety. For years, he didn't even suspect racism. They wouldn't say that Tony's lazy to my face. They would say that Tony's not efficient. That's in spite of the fact Chin Kui's work and hours matched his white counterparts. Already sleep-deprived, he worked harder. Yet criticisms persisted, and Chin Kui questioned his sanity. He fell into a major depression. That's the danger of this whole profession and being Black in this profession is that because it's so silent and because it's so invisible, you just think you're going crazy for thinking it because you can't prove it. His struggles became an open secret. The only other Black physician turned a blind eye. You know, it helped to bolster this idea that what was happening to me had nothing to do with race. Because I was thinking to myself, if it did, this Black doctor would, would reach out and let me know. But he didn't. Chin Kui gritted it out. And it was only last year, actually, that I sat down with my colleague who went through residency alongside me and brought up to me, and you could tell this kind of been weighing on him for a long time. Like, yeah, you know, they used to say a lot of stuff about you. That colleague was Matt Smith. I'm a pediatric ear, nose, and throat surgeon in Cincinnati, Ohio. After training, Smith grew closer to Chin Kui. He is one of the smartest people that I have ever met and one of the most talented. That's including medicine, but outside of medicine as well. Smith is white. 
He says he believes comments he heard from some supervisors about Chinqui were racist. While nothing was overtly said as an inflammatory comment, I would say that there are those biting remarks that lead to microaggressions and and build up over time. Initially, Smith said nothing to Chinqui. At that time, what I thought, if he didn't know those things were being said, then it wouldn't affect him necessarily directly. And as I went along, things continued to go the way they did. I realized that that was not the right approach to take. Smith is now outspoken about social justice with his medical students. He's starting a program to mentor minority school children to expose them to medicine. Until there are changes made in the pipeline, all you're going to get is what you put into the system. Therein lies the problem and the opportunity. Chin Kui agrees, but also says it isn't just about seeing more people like him in the job. The goal can't just be getting more Black doctors into medicine. Getting them there is vital because having someone who cares for your health, who understands and has lived through the struggles personally and culturally that you've experienced is super, super, super important. That's one systemic change medicine needs, in other words, to overcome some of the barriers to care. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. I am not prejudiced. Sports stars across the world have been showing their support for the Black Lives Matter movement. In Germany, Bundesliga players have been taking the knee before games, and Britain's Premier League stars have been doing the same. But a match in the UK has been overshadowed after a banner with a message, White Lives Matter, was flown over the stadium. Charlotte Gallier has more. This was while the, the players were taking a knee on the field, but Burnley apologised for, for that action and say that they will be doing their, their utmost to try and identify whoever was responsible for that. That's the BBC commentator John Murray. He was one of those who saw the message reading White Lives Matter Burnley being trailed behind a small plane. Players were seen shaking their heads in disgust. The condemnation was swift. The club said those responsible were no longer welcome at games and called the banner offensive. It's likely the person behind the stunt will be banned as the club will want to send out a strong message. The Burnley captain, Ben Mee, said the players were united in their reaction. We, as a group of players, condemn it, we're ashamed, we're embarrassed. Completely misses the point of what we're trying to achieve as a, as a football community, as a group of players. Um, it's a minority of, of our supporters. The banner has had more headlines than the game, which ended 5-0 to Manchester City. And because of the popularity and power of the English Premier League, it's being talked about across the world, not the news coverage the clubs and players want. English football's anti-racism charity Kick It Out said the point of Black Lives Matter is not to diminish the importance of other people's lives. It's about equality. One former player, Ifeonora, said he hoped the banner would be a catalyst and lead to more conversations about racism. Charlotte Gallagher. Tonight, a park on the American River in Folsom with a history of racism is once again under fire over its name. And tonight, once again, there are calls to rename Negro Bar. CBS 13's Laura Hafley with why some historians say the name should stay. 
Today, it's a popular summer hotspot with boaters and swimmers. A little exercise. This is a beautiful spot to come do that. But this area and the gold rush town of Folsom has a long history that predates even California becoming a state. The African founding father of California acquired title to the land in 1844. And when he died suddenly on May 18, 1848, people are rushing on his land finding gold. One of the West's early groups of pioneers taking advantage of the rich land. So this site here was the first gold mining site in today's Sacramento County. And the people that were mining here on the land grant, Rancho Rio de los Americanos, were Negros. And that's why this stretch of then American River was given the name, and later so was the state park. But for some, that name is concerning. We can't erase history, but we need to be sensitive to people. That's why California State Parks is considering a name change, an issue they visited before, writing in part, while African-American community leaders and historians have supported the continued use of this name in the past, California State Parks recognizes that such interpretations can change over time. But for historians in Folsom who understand the significance of the area. People came here and became a part of the great experiment of California. They say the name should stay. We just want to erase the context of black history because I'm offended by a sign. Well, the state plans to speak with scholars, stakeholders, and activists before making an informed decision. The Watcher. The Watcher. The Watcher. The Watcher. Law enforcement's use of facial recognition technology has come under scrutiny in recent months. Now, a man who says he was falsely arrested after a computer algorithm misidentified his face is speaking out. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, critics of the technology say the case shows how unreliable the tool is. Police in Detroit were trying to figure out who stole five watches from a Shinola watch store. And so they pulled security video that had recorded the incident. They zoomed in on the grainy footage and ran the suspect through a facial recognition system. A hit came back. 42-year-old Robert Williams of Michigan. When I look at the picture of the guy, I just see a big black guy. I don't, you know, I don't see a resemblance. I don't think he looks like me at all. In January, police in Detroit arrested Williams for the watch theft. Williams says he was placed in an interrogation room and police put three photos in front of him. And he says, so I guess that's not you either. So I picked it up and held it to my face and I told him, I said, I hope you don't think all black people look alike. Williams was detained and then released on bail until his hearing. That's when prosecutors dropped the charges against him. Academic and government studies have demonstrated that facial recognition systems misidentify people of color more often than white people. What makes this case extraordinary is that police admitted that facial recognition technology prompted the arrest. Typically, the tool is used in secret. Lawyer Phil Mayer is with the ACLU of Michigan. They never even asked him any questions before arresting him. They never asked him if he had an alibi. They never asked him where he was that day. The ACLU has filed a complaint against the Detroit Police Department. The complaint asks that police stop using the tool in investigations. In a statement to NPR, the Detroit Police Department says after the Williams case, the department enacted new rules. Now only still photos, not security footage, can be used for facial recognition and only in the case of violent crimes. According to Georgetown Law's Center on Privacy and Technology, at least a quarter of the country's law enforcement agencies have access to face recognition tools. Jameson Spivak is a researcher at the center. Most of the time, 
people who are arrested using face recognition are not told that face recognition was used to arrest them. The government use of facial recognition technology has been banned in half a dozen cities. In Michigan, Williams says he hopes the case is a wake-up call to lawmakers. Williams says there should be a nationwide ban. Let's say that this case wasn't retail fraud. What if it was rape or murder? Would I have got out of jail on a personal bond or would I ever come home? Williams and his wife, Melissa, worry about the long-term effects the arrest will have on his daughters. He was arrested on his front lawn. His young daughters cried as their father was taken away in a police car. Seeing their dad get arrested, that was their first interaction with the police. So it's definitely going to shape how they perceive law enforcement. In his complaint, Williams and his lawyers say if the police department won't ban the technology outright, then at least his photo should be removed from the database so this doesn't happen again. Bobby Allen, NPR News, San Francisco. The man Race, race, class, class, genre, genre, and the dilemmas, the dilemmas of black manhood. New details now in the death of Ahmad Arbery, the young man who was killed while jogging and running in Georgia. The three men arrested have now be, been indicted on felony murder charges in the shooting at least four months to the day Arbery was killed. And call the groin for a new investigation into the death of Elijah McClain, a 23-year-old black man who died after an encounter with police in Colorado last year. But an online petition is bringing new attention to the case after no one was charged. T.J. Holmes is here with more. Good morning, T.J. Hey, good morning to you. There's video of a black man being restrained on the ground by police complaining he can't breathe and he ends up dead. Now take George Floyd's name out of that scenario and apply Elijah McClain's. This happened to him nearly a year ago in a case that is now getting some intense new attention. A plea for justice from the family of Elijah McClain. For them to kill him because he was that bright and shiny, that different, uh, hurts. More than two million people have signed a petition demanding an independent investigation into the case of the 23-year-old. McClain's mother speaking to GMA overnight. We can blame somebody else, we can blame ourselves, but Elijah is who we were all. We're all trying to get to be. McLean died after being in police custody nearly a year ago. His case now is being reexamined in the wake of other high-profile police killings. The fact that it has taken the death of a man across the country to finally cause Coloradans to stand up, to look into a death caused by its own officers back in August is atrocious. The family's attorney says McLean was walking home after buying iced tea from a corner store when this call about a suspicious person was made to the Aurora PD in Colorado. Three officers responded to the call. McLean is seen walking on the sidewalk when officers approach him. Stop. Stop. One officer is heard telling McLean to stop. Things escalate when McLean allegedly attempted to grab an officer's gun. The officers then subdue him to the ground and place him in a carotid control hold, a move that restricts blood flow to the brain. McLean begs for relief, even uttering those eerily too familiar words. First responders arrive shortly after and administer ketamine, an anesthetic meant to rapidly tranquilize. It's standard protocol for the paramedics uh, to inject ketamine McLean went into cardiac arrest on the way to the hospital, where he stayed five days before ultimately being taken off life support. A coroner determined his cause of death undetermined. 
a young man, a young African-American man should be allowed to walk home wearing a mask, waving his arms to music. But that absolutely should not be a death sentence. The district attorney is open to taking another look at the case, but says it's going to take more than a petition. You know, if there is something out there that we missed, I will certainly take a look at it. Uh, But it's got to be something that's relevant to the investigation. But the passion that's going on with this case and, and the petition that's out there is not something I can base my decision on. All right. The governor says he's going to have his office try to look into this. And Stray, this is worth noting. You all remember at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were being encouraged to wear masks, there were black men that came out and said they were fearful of doing so because they'd be looked at with suspicion. Well, Elijah McClain was wearing a ski mask. He has a condition called anemia, which causes him to sometimes feel cold. I hate to even explain that as if I have to explain his behavior, but he was walking down the street doing nothing wrong that night. And a 911 call came about him being sketchy. And you shouldn't have to explain it, TJ. And, and there's a video from April that was just released of a man dying in police custody in Arizona. This is getting new attention as well. The police chief out there has offered his resignation. But yes, a 911 call about a Carlos Ingram Lopez is his name. Uh, officers showed up, three of them. They have now resigned. The police department says they did not follow protocol. The officers are calling this a horrible death. The police chief is. He's offered his resignation. But he died after being restrained on the ground for 12 minutes, pleading and begging for some help. And yes, in fact, he was saying he could not breathe straight. I'm having this conversation too much, TJ. Thank you. Black babies cost less. Well, tonight, the defenders are following major developments in the death of a 16-year-old inside a Michigan foster care facility. We've just learned a $100 million lawsuit has been filed. Cornelius Fredericks died last month after being restrained after he uh, allegedly threw a sandwich at the Lakeside for Children facility, which is in Kalamazoo. Defender Sean Lay joins us live. Sean, there is a, a separate lawsuit, and the governor is taking action as well. There's a lot to cover here to cover and a lot for parents to pay attention to. The details are absolutely chilling about this young man you see behind me, Cornelius Fredericks. Let's start with this group home facilities parent company telling the defenders tonight they have fired their director. They say they're cooperating with a police investigation and they're working to make their facilities restraint free. This is Cornelius Fredericks and his death is heartbreaking. This is one of the last photos of the teen on life support in a Kalamazoo hospital where he died May 1st after being restrained by staff at the youth home where he was living. Tania Gaucher is Cornelius's aunt. I just need answers and some justice for my nephew. Cornelius was living the past two years at Lakeside Academy in Kalamazoo. His mother died when she was 32. His father couldn't care for him. Cornelius became a ward of the state. Late April, the teen apparently threw a sandwich. Civil rights attorney John Marco says the staff allegedly restrained Cornelius for 10 minutes. And he says the staff waited 12 minutes to call for help when it was apparently clear the teen was in distress. During that time, he was screaming that He couldn't breathe. He was asking for help. Today, Marco filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Lakeside Academy and Sequel Youth and Family Services, its parent company. Yesterday, the state stripped the facility of its contract. But Marco says the state knew there were problems at the home, counting 30 state violations, and says it took the death of the teen for the state to act. Parent company Sequel has also been under the microscope in other states. An Oregon state senator sounding the alarm that there are safety issues in its youth foster homes. She told the CEO of Sequel that if they didn't stop the way that they were handling these children, that someone was going to die. 
back here live, just scratching the surface really today of a major investigation unfolding regarding the death of Cornelius Fredericks. A couple things you need to know. When Cornelius was rushed to the hospital after this incident at the group home, he was found to be suffering from COVID-19. Also, the entire incident apparently caught on the security cameras at the homes. Both attorneys involved say they are fighting to get that video. Jeffrey Figer's office just uh, telling us that uh, the, the center is apparently uh, not giving that video up. So that's going to tell a lot of the story as well. We're live tonight. Sean Lay, Local 4 Defenders. Yeah, we would sure think so. All right, Sean. I can feel it deep inside This black nigga's pride I have no fear when I say And I say it every day Every nigga is a star Every nigga is a star Who will deny that you and I and every nigger is a star. This is proof of how fast word spreads. You cannot say the N-word like that to a customer. When hateful words are said. Anytime is the wrong time, but right now it's for sure the wrong time. When a business owner allegedly uses a racial slur and profanity. He's like, come here, come look at this. Come look at this, what you did. I was like, what I do? Then he was like, get out of my store, um, such and such, such and such. So I was like, what? A lot of profanity. Then he was like, your mama, tell your mama to go and go back to Africa. And I was like, that threw me out. I was like, okay, all right. I got some for you, so I called the police. They hold a victim, a Leonardo Allen called on friends through Facebook Live, and a revolt against racism broke out. When I first got here, it was about 40 to maybe 50 people, and now I look back over there, <laughs> getting to be a big turnout. Allen stopped at Discount Auto Care for an oil change. He went to the bathroom, left a paper towel in the toilet, and he says because of that, the owner cussed him out. That owner eventually had to be escorted out. The crowd that came to Allen's defense forced the garage to close. When we said Sh shut it down, it shut down. If because you are angry, you start to hurl racial slurs, it means that you're comfortable using those racial slurs. Police initially wrote the owner and Allen tickets, then rescinded them, but the owner could pay a price. If you can't respect us, then why should we support your business? It appears the cost of hate is high. Take your money elsewhere. Hit them in their pocket. Now, late tonight, we got word that the owner of that store was going to be willing to talk to us from a church here in Glen Heights. Well, he was supposed to be here about 930. It was right at 10 when he arrived. A few community members spoke on his behalf. So did his daughter. At first, he said he wasn't going to address the cameras. Moments ago, just within the last couple of minutes, he did talk to us and tell us he apologized. He admitted that he used a racial slur. He said he had never used that term before, said he sort of said it in the heat of the moment. We will have a lot more from him tomorrow morning on Daybreak and on WFAA.com. It's still tense down here, Izzy, and I can tell you that protesters have said they'll be back at that store tomorrow. Is he aware of that, Teresa? What did he say about that? 
He said uh, he would open up if they would let him. He, in a statement that uh, he emailed out announcing that he would be willing to talk to the media, he said that he appreciates and supports peaceful protest. But he himself said today uh, the reaction uh, proved that what he did was not right. All right, Teresa Woodard live in Glen Heights tonight, and much more on the story ahead on News 8 Daybreak. Thank you, Teresa. We're being hunted every day. It's a silent war against African-American people as a whole. The hunt is on. And you're the prey. Well, Ben, when people from Jay's Auto Body Shop showed up at a daily Manchester rally on Monday, the protest organizers thought that all the protesters' cars were going to get towed. But it was then that they revealed that they were actually there to deliver a special surprise. The fact that they came forward and provided bikes for these, these three young boys was just, it was amazing. We couldn't be more thankful. Three new bikes for three boys, who police say were the targets of a hate crime early Sunday morning. Manchester police arrested brothers 27-year-old Matthew and 28-year-old Michael Lemelin on a number of charges after they allegedly chased three teenage boys who were riding their bicycles down Main Street in Manchester yelling racial slurs at them. They're both being held on a $150,000 bond. I hope that they take this time to reflect on their actions. And what they did was unacceptable. These are three young teenage boys who did not deserve one ounce of this, who were just minding their business, riding their bikes, and were called racial slurs, who were chased, hunted down, not even chased, hunted down. And it's unacceptable. I was sick, sick to my stomach that something like that could happen uh, not only in our community, but it happened anywhere in, our, in the state of this country. And the fact that uh, three young boys were the target of uh, this racist act, it just, it's, it's just sickening. It breaks my heart. Community leaders speaking out against the act and small businesses like Jay's Auto making an impact in the three boys' lives. Michael Lemelin has not been employed at Jay's Auto for more than a year. These pictures at Monday's rally taken by Maura Alarcon saying Justin Pratt from Jay's wanted to make it known that the business supports Black Lives Matter and moving forward in the community. Employees at Jay's Auto stayed at the rally for the duration. Manchester Mayor Jay Moran says he's dedicated to listening and bringing people together. Our next meeting we will talk about um, policies and um, procedures that we need to look at that will help uh, hopefully um, We'll have uh, people, black people, people of color around the table with us, giving us uh, information, giving us advice. Uh, I think the community needs to come together and work together to get this right. Now, the brothers are facing multiple charges, including reckless endangerment and risk of injury to a minor. They're being held and they're going to be up here at their first court appearance on August 18th. Live in Manchester, Taylor DiCello, Fox 61 News. This question, why is this stuff happening? The New York Times article, I mean, editorial today. The Trump effect. See, this is what I'm doing with my money, buying newspapers like Dick Gregory. <laughs> the Trump effect and how it spreads. It says we are on the brink under, under Trump on the brink of fascism. 
New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, editorial 1210-2015. I say fascism is end-stage white supremacy. See, it's, I mean, just like in Nazi Germany. Fascism, system of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. The Highway Patrol is investigating after two people say they had a gun pointed at them on the highway because the driver was black. ABC4's Nick McGurk learning more about what happened and joining us live with an update. Nick? Emily, we spoke to those two. They were on 215 yesterday, and they say this goes way beyond road rage. Here's what we are told happened. The two 17-year-olds, they don't want us to use their name. They do fear possible retaliation, but yesterday... The driver, who's black, said he was merging from the left lane on I-215 as it went from four lanes to three lanes. Then there was a man in a white van who apparently felt cut off. He started tailgating them. Then the teens say he slowed down for a while and then sped up, showing them the N-word, which he had written on a notebook. Try like he, like he purposely caught up to us and showed us the sign. We're just trying to get away. You know, like he wants to be done with this. I wanted to go home. I'm scared. I'm mad. I'm fuming. And then that's when we start to exit. And I look over and I see um, the dude with his hand out the window with a gun pointed out into our car. And I scream at the top of my lungs. And he looks over and slams on his brakes. The two are understandably really shaken up. They did get a, an image of the license plate. They've given that to the Utah Highway Patrol. Uh, the two tell me they want this man to lose his job and to be punished by law. So we asked the Highway Patrol, what's going on with this case? And they say uh, they are investigating, and what I'm told has already happened. Uh, they have forwarded the case to the State Bureau of Investigation and the Statewide Information and Analysis Center. Uh, that is the latest on this case. But... Uh, certainly a disturbing case, according to these two teenagers who said this all happened to them yesterday uh, on I-215. We're reporting live in Salt Lake County. I'm Nick McGurk, ABC4 News. Little brother, I heard y'all ain't hitting in New York. Word. Word. I heard y'all ain't hitting in L.A. Word. Word. I heard y'all ain't hitting in North Carolina. North Carolina. Tonight, three Wilmington police officers have been fired after they were caught on camera using ethnic slurs and making racially charged comments. WWI's Matt Bennett joins us now with more. So, Matt, the recordings captured some very inflammatory conversations. Yeah, Donna, Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho called the language violent, destructive, and despicable. When I first learned of these conversations, I was shocked, saddened, and disgusted. On his first official day on the job, newly appointed Wilmington Police Chief Donnie Williams publicly firing three officers. We officially terminated Officer James Gilmore, Corporal Jesse Moore II, and Officer Kevin Piner. During monthly video audits in the beginning of June, Chief Williams says a supervisor came across a recording from 44-year-old Kevin Piner's in-car camera that had accidentally been activated. The conversations included disrespectful language, hate-filled speech, and referring to black people as the N-word. They also criticized me. 
According to documents released by Wilmington Police, Piner and 44-year-old then-officer James Gilmore can be heard discussing recent protests. Piner tells Gilmore the only thing WPD is concerned with is, quote, kneeling down with the black folks. Gilmore starts talking about a video he saw on social media showing white people bowing down on their knees and, quote, worshiping blacks. Gilmore says, quote, how many times have I told you it's almost like they think they're their own god? Later in the recording, Piner receives a phone call from 50-year-old then-corporal Jesse Moore. Moore talks about an arrest he made the day before, calling the female suspect the N-word multiple times, and at one point saying, quote, she needed a bullet in her head right then and move on. Piner later tells Moore he feels a civil war is coming and says, quote, We are just going to go out and start slaughtering those effing N-words. I can't wait. God, I can't wait. Piner says he feels society needs a civil war to, quote, wipe them off the effing map. That'll put him back about four or five generations. There is no place for this behavior in our agency or our city, and it will not be tolerated. City Council voting unanimously to release personnel files for all three men, which are usually kept private, saying it's essential for the public to maintain confidence in the department. While I certainly didn't want Chief Williams' first official day on the job to start this way, I believe it is once again proof that we appointed the right individual to lead our agency and to guide us through this new season of police reforms. The department is also notifying the state in an effort to prevent these three men from ever practicing law enforcement for the rest of their lives. Chief Donnie Williams also has a plan going forward, including meeting with every WPD employee over the next month and bringing citizens on to the hiring board. Donna? Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, June 27, 2020. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, questions, suggestions. The number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943 pound press star six one if you would like to participate number again six oh five three one three five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate Chief Williams is a black male. The segment that you just heard in North Carolina, Wilmington, North Carolina. Chief Williams is a black male victim of white supremacy. I thought that was important. I also thought it was important equally. They got through that entire segment. Three white officers calling them niggers, talking about the boogaloo. Getting assault rifles slaughtering these black people this black female deserved a bullet in her head they got through that whole segment without ever using the word racism absolutely stunning can't say that that is you know an anomaly that's pretty routine but I mean wow how do you get through that whole segment nobody is called a racist 
dangerous, violent, despicable, all that, okay, racist? Wow. The beginning of true knowledge is calling things by their proper name. Now, context, when I heard that report, these fellas set them back a few generations in stage white supremacy from these officers, and I'm sure they're not the only ones. But when I hear all that in Wilmington, North Carolina, I was immediately reminded of one of the best documentaries that I've ever seen. Christopher Everett, Wilmington on Fire, who's a guest on the program back at the end of 2015, is in the archives. Really awesome content and will give you excellent historical historical perspective uh, on why you would have an incident like this in June 2020. Whites in North Carolina and the world have a history of gleefully. He said, I can't wait. Excited. Anticipation. Killing black people. Slaughtering black people. Lots of them. By the bushel. You'll see the same type of behavior in Wilmington on fire. Fantastic documentary. You should check it out again in the archives. And we spoke with the filmmaker, Christopher Everett, black male. Bravo. He was tweeting about this very incident. Said, look at that. Look at my film and you will get the historical context needed to understand. I said, absolutely. Absolutely. One other quick thing that I will add. One thing that is generally constructive when these type of incidents happen, when there's a major focus on white supremacy racism. This was uh, like 2005 with Hurricane Katrina, 2013 with uh, Trayvon Martin, the trial, uh, much of the presidency with Barack Obama. When a lot of people are focused on white supremacy racism, uh, sometimes it will get people to talk about racism who normally wouldn't talk about it or to get people to talk more seriously about racism, white supremacy than than they normally would. Uh, And some of the things that they share in those moments are amazing. Uh, I heard one of those this week. I almost was just going to include this in the general mix, but there was so much content. This was like, wow, I don't really, I don't really need it. And then I thought I was like, man, just, yeah, well, I'll I'll include it. Uh, But the compensatory call in, I only play segments from the last seven days. I know we have some listeners that are newer. Some folks have been here for a while, Uh, but the audio segments that we start on Saturdays, only the last seven days. I don't go digging through the catacombs and, you know, get this one from 2009, get this from 2008. Not even from May 2020. Eh, don't do that. Just the last seven days, everything that you heard, including the segment that you're going to hear right now. This is Matt Barnes, a retired NBA basketball player. He won a championship with the Golden State Warriors. He's a journalist. Uh, He has a video program uh, on Showtime. He and Steven Jackson, who's been out doing a lot of work with the protests, uh, he knew uh, George Floyd uh, and has been out doing a lot of work talking about racism, white supremacy. Uh, But this is Matt Barnes talking about some of his own experiences with white supremacy racism in Sacramento, our narrator for the book club, Mel, right down there in Sacramento. 
Oh, oh, shit, I'm from Sacramento. That's not too much better. Oh, yeah, Sacramento. So I get it. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Hey, that's the state capital, man. No, I yeah. love Sac. You know what I mean? I, I've had I've had some ups and downs out there, man. You oh, know, I faced sure. a lot of racism in Sacramento. You know what yeah. I mean? But then I was just a part of a of a rally that my brother Dion Taylor, who's a filmmaker, uh, put on the other day, and there was fifty fifty three thousand, and it really touched my heart because I faced a lot of racism growing up out there. Um, and to see that many, like I said, just a, a rainbow of different faces and cultures and colors and beliefs, and it was beautiful. But when I was in high school, there was a dude fucking with my my, my sister. I was a, a senior. She was a sophomore. So this is 1998. This is like three months before I'm about to come down to UCLA. So this dude is fucking with her and calling her. And she's, told, she's told on him and nothing has happened. And just this one day he called her and spit in her hair. Mm. And so she comes to me, and I'm at fourth period, so it's my last class. I'm about to go home for the day. And she's crying with her little with her little friends. And she's holding her hair out, and there's like a string of spit coming down. I'm just like, what the fuck? And this kid just happens to walk by. So I beat the dog shit out of this dude. Beat the shit out of him all into these bushes and everything. So we end up going into the office, and um, the principal didn't believe. Like, like there's spit in her hair, and he was calling her. Well, you know, his dad's a big-time lawyer in this city, and he's not... He wasn't raised that way, so they basically didn't believe me. So, like I said, I'm, not, I'm the best football player, basketball player. I'm all. I'm about to go to UCLA. Like, I'm putting my school on the map, and I'm just like, you think I'm lying about this? Or you think I'm just going to beat this kid up? I'm about to go to college. So, anyway, I'm suspended for like a week, couldn't play basketball. Like, midway through my suspension, um, the KKK came to my school and burned down like a, a, a bathroom, hung a mannequin with uh, my football jersey on it, died. Had swastikas everywhere, broke windows, like just vandalized my high school. Hmm. Like you, yeah. could look, you could look it up. The NAACP came down there and everything. It was a big deal, and um, yeah. it just from that day on. Like I said earlier, I'm Italian and black. But when that day happened, I realized that the world looked at me as a black man. Like I, I'm yeah. proud to be. I'm a proud of my Italian side. I'm a proud of my black side. But I realized at 18 years old that. The world looks at me as a black man, you know, so I have to to, to care of myself and, and move accordingly. So yeah. to, to, to circle back, like the fact that Sacramento had all these people, over 50,000 people out there, it was, a, it was a beautiful thing to see because, like I said, just hate. That, that, that's my main, like, hate. We got to get hate out of here, gotta man. Got to get hate out of here. There's no room for it. I agree. Context of white supremacy, not the context of hate context of white supremacy that is the problem that we are trying to solve words are very important speaking of words they cursed I heard the F word and the S word I heard some profanities in there this is a part of a video interview that's it's lengthy it's I don't know it's more than an hour. It's substantial. I didn't watch the whole thing. I That popped up and I got intrigued and made my sound clip and then they deviated to talking about other things. Uh, you can watch it. I'll post it if you want to see the whole thing, but it's lengthy. Anyway, but they were like consuming cannabis uh, during the interview, uh, which you can see on the video and cursing. They had the audacity to redact him saying nigger that right there is exactly why when I play audio clips news reports and they censor it in word or they bleep it out entirely I put it back in that is a massive part of the problem of white supremacy racism Uh, we're not being honest we don't call things uh, by their proper name 
just said that in the news clip, not calling individuals racist when they practice racism, white supremacy, or not even using the term racism. Uh, and then we come back, they were calling him a nigger. They didn't call him an N word. They called him a nigger. And why is it that you can say the S word and the F word? Why is it that you can say all that? I've noted that, you know, in other times, it, it, it just seems, if not contradictory, it seems. Uh, like somebody just has really arbitrary discretion in terms of what is offensive, what, you know, should be censored and what we are going to allow to go unfiltered. I don't filter white supremacist content or conduct. That's a major part of the problem. Censoring out what they've done. I said, keep it Negro bar. Don't change it. That's in California. That's probably not too far from Sacramento. Keep it Negro bar. I don't want it to be N word bar. I don't want it to be the justice bar. Like, no. Negro bar. Until we replace white supremacy with justice, and then we can come up with, you know, whatever else. But until then, Negro bar. Uh, let's see. Lots to get to before we get to the callers. Speaking of paying attention to detail, the segment of the clips, they were talking about the importance of walking, get some exercise and black females who are organizing these efforts to tie things that have happened uh, historically in this part of the world, going out and doing Harriet Tubman's uh, trail or going out and walking some of the trails that uh, black females walked during the bus boycott. Fantastic. Constructive. Great. Whoopee. More exercise for all. I did have a thought. This was mentioned before. Mel, speaking of Mel in Sacramento, she talked about uh, black mental health and looking for sites for counseling and support mental health resources. And she said, man, I had a tough time. A lot of them, they seem to be anti-black male. And I could finally find one. And I posted the site for that one. But that was a black female site. That was who they were focused on. And I was like, man, we can't just have resources that are for black people in general. Is that is that wrong? Is that a problem? Not that I'm opposed to anybody. If you want uh, resources that are exclusively for black females or exclusively for black males, not that I'm you know opposed to that, but it's just, man, it has to be exclusive. Um, anyway, so that was with the counseling. And then, you know, I heard that about the walking. I was thinking that too, like it has to be exclusive. Like, why is that? And I've noted that it's regular, that sort of exclusion of black males unless we're going to talk about dead black males then we can pile up courses, corpses forever but the resource aspect like frequently uh, especially in mainstream outlets uh, it'll be that intersectionality and black females going walking black females counseling black females problems in the workplace like consistently I've talked about it before and that was one and then within that same report it was focused on the history of Audre Lorde who is a victim of racism, white supremacy, but that would be a cowbell and that would be uh, LGBTQ. That's how she self-identified. It's like, man, like, whoa, I'm all for exercise, but I mean, wow, if racists find a way to ruin everything, like it can't just be, let's go out and walk and have a good time. Like we got to get the sexual confusion in there and promote some tragic arrangements, being a sexual arrangement with a white person or some sort of sexual activity with whites. I mean, Man, we can't just do the walking. We can't just do the walking. Okay. System of racism. Uh, and we can't just do walking together, boys and girls. We can't do that. All right. <clears throat> can't walk with Bill Cosby. Got it. Let's see. There was, I didn't play a re audio report on this, but 
in Seattle this week, it got a lot of attention. There was a black male motorist and or a non-white male motorist. And he said that a white woman who was reported as Leah, that she said something racist to him in the vehicle. And so there was this long video of him confronting her out of the vehicle and she becomes hysterical and starts crying and all of that. Uh, some of our listeners saw it and said, you know, I don't know if these are actors. Is, you know, is this something that they're putting on, which would not surprise me for Seattle. Uh, but the main takeaway uh, that I saw in that was I've said consistently for about two months now, we are not looking for confrontations uh, with white people. Washington state is open carry. Many other states are as well. Uh, white people have been pretty brash uh, about hey I'm brandishing I'm carrying I'm mad about these stay at home orders and a whole lot of other things niggers mostly uh, I'm carrying I'm packing lots of mags too I'm ready to roll boogaloo time uh, this is not the time to be running up and confronting white people I got my smartphone and I'm ready to roll we're live streaming you you know you know you called me the n-word and that's you could be dead in about five seconds. That's what I was saying the whole time. Cause that uh, video went on for a while. Like she starts crying. You got a white woman crying anywhere. Really? It could be Seattle, Bangladesh, Miami, anywhere in the world. Really known universe. Oof. This could go bad. All kinds of ways. What happens if an enforcement officer drives by and just sees you out here yelling at a white woman crying. Derek Chauvin happens to drive by. What happens if her husband, now they said she had a non-white husband, so that would be another cowbell, but so what? What happens if her husband should just come out and see his wife being accosted by a stranger? What happens if her white father or white neighbors or just any random five white people come outside and just see a white woman being accosted by a non-white person in an open carry state? This could go bad in many, many different ways, more than I can think of. Uh, even st- she could have a gun. A lot of white women that carry. <clears throat> I said it consistently. Unless you planned, like I've been plotting this for about five months now. You know, I got it all scaled out. I've driven the route. I did it. Remember Dylan Roof? He had gone to the church. He had scouted it. He had called. He had done his. He had done his reconnaissance, as they say. If you've done all of that and you are prepared, like, boy, these white folks are fitting to get it today. Like they do not know if you've done all that. Well, then whoopee, do it, do it. But I mean, if this is just something that happened, this is spontaneous. You know, she cut you off or cursed at you or whatever she did. The procedure I recommend. You get their information, take a photo, write it down, whatever it is. Stop. Let them proceed. Make a report if you deem it's that serious. After you let them proceed, you go about your business. That is what I recommend. The reason is everything that you just heard in the last 20 minutes of the audio segments. I was going to go back and get the segment again this week when Irie was talking about observing something very similar to this down in Louisiana. She said she saw uh, it was a white man. I think it was a pair of them race soldiers in a car joking about running over a black female with her children offspring they take off 
Iris going down the road and then he terrorize or they terrorize her. I said, and it seems like it's been more of that. It was, you know, several of these reports last week and then you got a bunch of them uh, this week. I think in defensive driving class, the recommendation is let that go. I'm not tailing anybody. I'm not trying to chase them down and have an exchange with them. None of that. I'm not trying to have any sort of confrontation, jumping out of the none of that. Something happens. I get they call me a nigger. They even they had the one report where the fella in Utah wrote it out on a piece of paper, got up to them and then put it up. And I said, now even think about that now. Is he driving down the down the highway and he's already got nigger scrawled on a piece of paper because he knows I'm a, and I'm going to encounter some nigger motorists as we're getting down the highway here. So I want to be prepared. Or did he have the notebook? He's driving along and he sees a nigger and it's uh oh, let me get this, write this down, driving with it. I mean, <laughs> racist man, racist woman, racist child. Incidentally, in that specific report, he put the N-word up, showed him, and then put the gun up. Now, that was a cowbell. I hope people heard that because they interviewed both of them. They were the 17-year-olds. They interviewed the black male, and then they interviewed the white woman uh, who was with him in the vehicle. She was the one screaming and all that, so that might have set him in a special rage. I did mention Dylan Roof, right? That's what you said. You're raping our women and all, so, I mean, that might have been a special rage probably a really bad idea for that sort of thing right now you're out in public in a tragic arrangement like I would expect a lot of that sort of thing to be happening anyway um, I think I've said consistently as well the whole time I would probably stay in the house the last about five or six segments that would be evidence reason why I would give such a suggestion just not a good time to be uh, out and about uh, in public, all of these type of things just happening randomly. These weren't vendettas that they had with some white person that they've known for 20 years. Or we went to college together and got some sort of ongoing lifelong feud. Uh, these are just random motorists, random folks that they, you know, drove by or what have you. And something happened. He had the children being accosted, yelled at, called them. I mean, system of white supremacy, racism, very dangerous times for many reasons principally racist man racist woman racist child let's see uh, before we get to the callers uh, we'll remind folks this broadcast exclusively uh, if we could not use metaphors uh, I was watching. Oh, wait, I could, Paul, I could even I could share one extra tidbit. No metaphors, but one extra bit of information. Uh, the documentary I mentioned previously, Wilmington on Fire, fantastic film. So glad we had Mr. Everett on the program. Documentary I saw this week, uh, Tower, came out in 2016 got rave reviews that was how I saw it and it gets mentioned all the time it's the 19 uh, what is it 1966 Austin Texas shooting Dr. Martin Kevorkian's university same school uh, where they had this shooting I think he killed this white shooter uh, CJ Whitman white man <laughs> but his name is Whitman 
Uh, he killed 16 people. I think he wounded about 30 folks. He had 90 minutes of uh, just shooting down uh, from this tower in the middle of the University of Texas campus. But the documentary Tower that came out in 2016, it's very good. Racism is, is there, though in many subtle ways. Uh, one of the first, and I thought serious ways, is there. Now, this shooting happened in August of 1966 so and I think this was the what they call the deadliest like single person go out and start shooting someone this was the deadliest one of those incidents excluding like Tulsa because that's not really a single person shooter and those types Uh, but was the the worst illustration in terms of worst loss of life for a long time I think up until the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016, or it might have been uh, my man in Vegas, Stephen Paddock. Uh, I think it might have Stephen Paddock has has taken that record because I think he had about 50 casualties uh, or something. But they still mention it regularly because it was just you know he shot so many people. Uh, Mr. Whitman, white man. Uh, but this documentary. This shooting happens in August 1966 and they're talking about all the details and they have the transcript, a lot of archival footage. It went on for 90 minutes. Uh, And so they're talking to one of the white enforcement officers who was on the scene and he said when it first started the shooting's going on. He's like, what in the world? And he says, oh man, I thought it was uh, the Black Panthers. I thought they probably had about 100 Black Panthers up in the windows and the revolution was on. Now, the shooting happened in August 1966. The Black Panther Party was founded in October 1966. Now, the slogan Black Panther, that had been used. Yes, indeed. And, you know, it wasn't that wasn't the first time somebody uttered it once they officially organized in 1966. Either groups were were kind of competing to get that name. But I just thought, wow, like under any circumstances that is the initial thought something bad happened black people are to blame it's got to be black people and a bunch of niggers too like it's got to be the niggers have taken over and they're killing us all like the boogaloo has started like man whoo i remember even dr welsing is in the archives she shared she was in washington dc when john f kennedy was assassinated three years earlier in 1963 and she said that the initial announcement was that a black fella did it and that they were looking for some nigger in Dallas. Now it turns out that wasn't accurate either, but she says she remembered that the initial, she talked about it's in the archives. You can go back in and listen, but she said she remembered that the initial reports, a nigger has shot the president. It's always the boogaloo. It's always black people to blame. Anywho. So no metaphors, please. Uh, if we could be direct, uh, with what it is, we have to say, uh, race soldiers regularly will use deception Uh, and not being direct uh, about what they are trying to articulate, especially if the subject is white supremacy. Frequently, they will use metaphors and similes to take two separate entities and insist that they are identical. Exactly the same. And frequently, this is not the case. Uh, Victims, myself included, we have been exposed to this conduct for many years. Frequently, myself, hey, I am still learning. That's the case for a lot of us. 
uh, as such, sometimes we don't have evidence, logic to articulate our thoughts. Uh, and so sometimes we'll swap, we'll use some sort of comparison or analogy to express ourselves. Uh, if we could be direct, exact, specific with what it is we want to say that would be appreciated I will prompt about the metaphors thank you kindly if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts that would be great Uh, just make sure everybody has at least one chance to share Uh, if you have additional thoughts if you could let everyone get their one turn and then we should have additional time for you to share Uh, also if you could please use your mute button Uh, That would be great. Uh, Just make sure that we don't have a lot of unnecessary background noise uh, to compete with. Uh, If you know you're in kind of a loud area, uh, if you could get to a quietish spot and unmute, share your thoughts and then mute your line and then mute again. If you need to share one more time, then you can just unmute your line. But that helps just minimize the amount of distortion in the program. Much obliged. Number again, 605 313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate we will be here Tuesday make sure I get that in as well then we'll get our callers uh, Dr. Gerald Horn would seem like finally we should have had him a long time ago but <sighs> we got him when we got him Dr. Gerald Horn should be here on Tuesday. We read his biography in the book club on Paul Robeson uh, sometime back, not that long ago. Uh, He's written many, many books. I think every single one of them is on white supremacy, racism as a global system. Uh, But we'll talk to him about Paul Robeson. We'll talk about the protests, the system in general. Be looking forward to it this Tuesday, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Dr. Gerald Horn. Star 6-1 for folks who would like to participate. Uh, Since we are global, I think I'll double check, make sure he is with us. It is kind of late. Let me see if my math is accurate. My goodness. Uh, So if it's correct, it is 4.45 a.m. in Norway right now. So that's why I'm checking in to see he messaged and said he wanted to listen in. So we got him on the line. Our caller uh, in Norway uh, Kamau, he's been with us. He was with us for the Global Sunday Talk and several other broadcasts. Uh, I will check in, see if he has anything he would like to share with us. Are you there, sir? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Whew. Is it uh, 4.45 a.m.? Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Whew. Feel free. I'd like to speak about um, Camille Cosby's um interview on ABC News Uh, someone sent me a link to it Uh, she speaks about um, Bill Cosby being granted an appeal by the Supreme Court um, in that state and she the title is Camille Cosby and and on her husband's appeal and the Black Lives Matter and Me Too movements and uh I've put the link in um, Skype here, so you can share that with other people. Um, and the link is to uh, the text of the interview and also to about 12 minutes of an interview. And my commentary on what she has said was, first of all, I, I didn't realize that she was um, a doctor as well, that she had done a PhD. And within the first... Um, 
two minutes of uh, what she said, she she made some comments directly about um, the current protests and towards young people that they have to be persistent and that they have to be um, focused and not allow themselves to be... They have to be awake in the movement, don't be distracted, and to be aware of infiltrators that would try to project their own agenda on into the movement. And I suspect that she was trying to speak in a coded way to with respect to what um, the LGBT um, section of Black Lives Matter. Um, in her interview, she, she showed a, a bit of awareness um, where she's not talking, she said it's not just about bad cops, it's bad cops who work with bad prosecutors, who work with bad judges. So she showed a bit, um, a bit of a systemic understanding um, my colleague that shared this interview with me told me that he believed that uh, he said that Dr. Walton told him once that um, she believes that um, Dr. Cosby's wife Camille had read the ISIS papers and in her interview she makes a lot of um, references to how America um, that white women with respect to black men and sex tend to lie and cause the black men to be lynched. And she made very, a very strong comparison with Bill Cosby and Emmett Till and also Bill Cosby and the Tulsa um, terrorist action in the 20s. And she made this uh, statement educationally and economically independent uh, and that they were. Um, so she made the comparison between Bill Cosby and Tulsa being educationally and economically independent and therefore targeted. Um, it's, just, it's impossible for a black man to rape white women um, and not that did not be... Um, uh, taken care of uh, so it, yeah, so she's saying that this should have, if this was true then he would have been in prison from the 70s I suppose she mentioned that Bill Cosby was harassed by Nixon's um, um, from Nixon time, from the time of Nixon they've been harassing him or surveying him So I thought she was, uh, I thought her timing of the interview, which was her first one in uh, a few, in many years, was quite interesting. And I thought it was very important that she, I thought it was very interesting that she had strong criticisms for um, our, the Me Too movement. She said that um, it's quite, it's, we, she says we know women and women can lie about these things. Um, and, but, and that for the Black Lives Matter, she was generally positive, but also spoke in a coded way to be careful about other people. She said, if other people have their agendas, let them go and have their own movement. But, and she's talking to the young people, but if this is something that you care about, you must be focused, you must be determined, 
you must um, be aware so that infiltrators don't take your movement over. So that's something I thought was that I thought that was really good. Um, I don't do I have any more time or my my five minutes are up. Uh, that's about five. Uh, we'll uh, check in with some of our other folks, and then if you have other things that you want to share, I'll swing back around and we will definitely. I think I'm. I'm think I'm good for now. Thank you for including me. Oh, for sure. Thank you for. Woo, man, I don't know how either way you look at it, getting up that early or being up so late. Uh, but we are appreciative. Uh, global system of white supremacy racism. Global system white supremacy racism uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up proceed Maddie Harris yes ma'am hi good evening Gus good evening callers and listeners so Gus I did speak um, not yesterday but last week during um, workplace racism and I kind of just touched on uh, what I've been dealing with as far as um, discussing the issues that um, are in the headlines today regarding racism, white supremacy, police brutality, and a person that I considered a really good friend, almost like a sister. We, we considered ourselves sisters. And I know you said, you know, to it would be best to not, you know, have any discussions with a person I'm hearing Mr. Fuller's voice in my ear, no squabbling. We got into a point where we were just, you know, not even verbally talking, but the text, and she put me in a text group with um, two of her other family members. And uh, just a little background, they are black conservatives. They say um, that they were card-carrying NAACP members, they were staunch Democrats, but in um, homeschooling her children and reading up on American history, um, her background is Jamaican, um, that she began to realize that, the you know, the Democrats or the uh, racist groups and the Republicans wanted to end and just a, a big argument. And... Um, I would tell her, I told her a few times, you know, you need to stop, please stop sending me videos, stop sending me um, text messages. All of her videos, all of them were of, like, for example, she sent me a video of a little black kid. It was a little group of kids, I would say no older than eight, maybe nine would be the eldest kids, a black kid fighting a little white kid, looked more in his uh, Spanish, Mexican in particular. And you hear the kids like egging on the little black kid to beat up the white kid. And she sees this video with uh, saying, oh, his parents are teaching him to be racist. And just continue to send me all these videos of black people mistreating white people. And I'm like, you know, stop sending me the videos. I don't condone violence in any way. You know, there's, I could send you back a hundred videos of the opposite, but I'm not even going to get into that because I want to replace white supremacy with justice. I, you know, I would say the right things, but then I would get, I would take it so personal. And I think that's what I'm having a hard time with. 
is not taking it personal because although she is black, her the verbiage that she's using is like them. So it's just going to take me a few seconds. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to read to you one text she sent. Um, the weaponization of the black community has been successful. They destroy themselves. They destroy their own communities. They destroy their children's future, and they are destroying their relationships with every segment, every other segment of the community they live with. They have become toxic to everything they touch. This wasn't the dream of Martin Luther King Jr. This is the mentality of the black community, which, according to you, has been brainwashed that will propagate this continued self-destruction where there is no redemption or reconciliation in this newfound religion of Black Lives Matter. Blacks are bowing down to a false deity that offers no peace while rejecting the Prince of Peace. Imagine America has had a black president, something our enslaved ancestors would never have imagined, and yet you still can't come together in peace. So you see the language is very you, you, never us or we. I'm just having a hard time with that. And even though in my mind I know I need to stop, and I have, we have stopped um, the discussion, my heart hurts because watching, you know, listening to videos, watching clips on the news, listening to NPR, you know, it's, it's sad to hear, but now when it's coming from someone you consider a really dear friend, um, it is hard. And even uh, talking about our hair and just, uh, you know, I'm thinking of um, the beauty con game. I'm talking about the European standard of beauty. You know, why do you even feel you always have to blow dry your hair? And just think of those things. Everything has now become this big debate. I mean, we were we were talking about hair and the, the fact that California recently passed the hair, um, the Crown Act, and she sends me pictures of the most unkempt afros saying, oh, is this what black people want to wear in the military? And I'm like, why would you send me pictures of those? It, it, it's been really hard. So please, just a few words to help me um, process or even though I'm not responding to her, I'm still thinking about it all the time. And every time I see something, because she's always saying, show me stats. I want to see statistics. And she's constantly throwing out statistics. Oh, and to add, her nephew, who she had in the chat group, is also processing to become a police with the um, Miami-Dade Police Department. And immediately as we're talking, I sent them an article link from a .gov website saying that Judges, um, it's been uh, researched and studied that judges give black men 20.5% higher or longer sentences than white men of the same, you know, uh, of the same crime. So the nephew chimes in, well, if black people are 17% of the society and are uh, committing 55% of violent crimes, maybe that's right. So their mind automatically always goes to these statistics that criminalize and just, um, you know, paint black people and black men in particular. So, of course, the study said, based on the, uh, these gen- white and black men had the same crim- criminal history. So it wasn't that the black men had, had more 
30 seconds? They both had the same background. So just some advice on how to deal with that and if anyone else is dealing with that in their lives with people that they really do care about. And I will my line thank you. Hmm. Much obliged for giving us the update. I do remember you calling in to talk about that before. Um, minimize contact. Man, Mr. Fuller says that pretty often. Minimize, and particularly under these circumstances because so many people are stressed right now about all kinds of things. And, and you know, rightly so. Uh, I would not uh, have these sort of back and forth exchanges. I think I'd say before people that cause you stress, people that, you know, you tend to have disagreements with or quarrels, even if they're minor. Um, I just would not, you know, if you all have some sort of relationship where you can have healthy conversations about cooking or travel or work or life goals or family or whatever, you know, that is constructive. Awesome. But I'd make it very clear, like I do not, you know, talk about I'm not going to talk about this anymore because it just seems that we have uh, different views, which is fine. You know, whatever your perspective are, but it just doesn't make sense. Like we have other things that are constructive where we do agree with. I would much rather focus on those uh, if, you know, this is a constructive relationship. But I can say that it's been my experience. A lot of folks, um, just most non-white people do not understand racism white supremacy and the confusion is enormous and frequently that confusion will be manifest in a lot of blaming black people because if there is no system of racism white supremacy then black people are just extraordinarily or extraordinary screw-ups and lames Uh, and that's generally what it is Uh, once it's not racism that's not a problem we don't have a system of racism that is doing all this just oh my goodness black people are the biggest chumps and lames and you know all that so I mean I just would not argue with the person if you bring them information or statistics and they find another way to justify just be alright we just have a different opinion on this which is fine I'm not saying that you're right I'm not saying anybody's right I'm just saying we have a different viewpoint and let's just talk about something else I'd appreciate it if you don't send me any of those texts and I would let them know if you send in the future I'm not going to respond because I'm not going to even read them like send me information, whatever other things that we have that are constructive, but I'm not going to do this anymore because I don't think this is healthy for either one of us to just keep having the same debate back and forth. We just don't agree on politics and that happens sometimes, Uh, but it would be for real. It would be that. And if that person insists like they got to make sure they get in their jabs about black people, I might have to really reconsider uh, because I just, at least me personally, I do not allow people that are just going to be in my presence and talking bad about black people, gossiping about black people. I uh, just, I feel like you get pulled into that misconduct uh, in some way, shape, form. And I don't even want to hear that. I don't want to be around people that are just constantly talking bad about black people and blaming black people for all of our problems. And it's not racism. Black people are just lame and criminal and all the rest of it. Well, all right. (laughs) If that's, if that's how you feel, I'm going to go work on my black self-respect and I will check in with you down the road. Hope you are doing well. And, uh, hopefully your black self-respect meter will improve. But yeah, I would not engage in those sort of uh, exchanges with anybody, family members included. 
if other folks, if you have any suggestions on how to deal, if you have a person, a friend, you know, because I recognize like that could be tough if you have someone that you have an emotional connection to. And especially if you all have some like years invested together, that is tough. But that's that's what I'm saying. It would just be it would you don't necessarily have to exclude this person unless they insist that, oh, no, we got to talk about this. You got to hear what lame chumps you are. <laughs> then that might cause a reconfigure. But I mean. Yeah, we should have other things that are constructive that we chatted at. Like all of these years, there should be some support underlying all of that. So we just don't talk about politics. We can talk about food and all the rest. Although I would say, now if there is a system of white supremacy racism, Dr. Welsing said that that is one of the greatest illnesses on the planet, the denial of white supremacy racism. At some point, you know, I might have to question how much time and energy I want to spend with people who deny the existence of that system that I think exists and that I'm working to try to eradicate. But at least in the meantime, we could just talk about other things, food, recipes, weather, offspring. Yeah, her off. And I would just with her offspring, I wouldn't worry about that at all. If he's going to be an enforcement officer, white people can show you better then I can tell you he will find out real quick if he if he gets hired I wouldn't worry about that he'll be coming back to tell you wow racism is a big problem <laughs> like yes I know I've heard I've heard we got to talk to your mom let's see uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, if you have a commentary to share line should be open can I be heard yes ma'am Okay. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, I don't. I don't know if you say um, fair and lovely. Fair and lovely is this enlightening claim. Um, it's changing its name because of the recent protest to um, just lovely. And um, when I saw that, I thought, okay, does the ingredients change? And the answer is no. So it's still a, a bleaching cream, a skin lightening cream, but they're just going to um, refine the name and just change it to um, lovely. The other thing I wanted to talk about was, um, I think we're talking about black mental health. So like maybe for like a month or so, I started um, going to a therapist. Unfortunately, it was a white person, a white female. And um, when... The George Floyd killing happened, you know, and the protests and stuff. And, and I was speaking to her about, you know, listening to white supremacy and, and, and um, stuff like that. And her response was like, you know, like basically, like we're talking about it, this now because it's in the news, <laughs> you know, because, and she's like, yeah, it's like, it's just politics, it's just politics. And I'm like, thinking to myself, like, what are you talking about? Like, listen, what's the is my life? It affects my life to like to a minute detail, like the way I think, my actions, everything. So, what do you mean? It's not just like a segment in a news clip. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, I wanted to mention that, and I also want to mention the um, the uptick with the um, the the white terrorist attacks. I don't know what else to call it. Um, I don't know if you played a clip also about that um, black female who got lit on fire by some white males in a car. I think I met that bunch of or something like that. Um, you mentioned so much. Um, I think that's up for now. That's it. Um, thank you. White therapist been uh, helpful, or 
other than you know oh no i thought i i, I had to i, I said i'm not working out because that, that i need to talk about this in my supremacy and if i can't talk about this in my supremacy it's not you can't help me oh, okay. a lot of the things that i make like a lot of things that i make i make it because i'm responding to racism and white supremacy so i homeschool because i don't want my child to experience that uh education system um that racism white supremacy in education system you know so it's like if you can't understand that, like, how can we, you know, how can you help me? So that's what, that's what happened with her. Mm. We have heard that from other folks. They attempted, you know, to do some therapy. And they said, that's why I kind of, I'm resistant. They'll say that. They always find some way of blaming black people. Black people don't believe in therapy. It's taboo for black uh, no, uh, in the system of racism, they don't allow niggers to go to therapy or doctors, period. And then you try to go and say, man, racists are causing me. Oh, you got schizophrenia. Yeah, that's what that draptomania. Yeah, you got double schizophrenia and draptomania. We have to give you some medication and uh, maybe lock you up for a little. I mean, <laughs> and then you got, yeah, the niggers, they got some type of phobia. They got hangups about that mental health. Yeah, they don't they don't want to do it. They just want to go to church and praise the Lord. Uh, congratulate. Well, I won't say congratulate. Well, maybe congratulations and commendation for putting in the work to homeschool because that is not easy. That is time and energy, but I think worth the investment uh, given the system that we're in and trying to do the best to uh, <clears throat> provide resources for your child and shelter them as best you can from all that abuse and terrorism uh, in the racist public schools. Uh, I did see that. Uh, fair and lovely they were changing the name of their product but I don't think that's an improvement at all if the system of white supremacy were eradicated we wouldn't have a need for fair and lovely or just lovely Uh, I think a lot of products got named just as a lot of black people got mauled now I saw the reports for the 17 year old that got burned she went home to her parents. I think that might be a cowbell too. I think that might be a cowbell too. I saw the video for that one. And she went home and her parents told her to go to the hospital to check because she had burns. I think that's a cowbell too. Uh, I saw that one. And I think I even had the report for that one. But there were so many of those uh, that I just got confused because she was really young. And then it was that pair in Utah that was young. So I just got confused because there were so many. I guess, man. There are many dangers on the planet right now. The number one danger, as always, the system of white supremacy. Yes, I did see the female who was burned. I neglected to include that in the audio reports because I was a bit overwhelmed with segments about that type of thing this week. Uh, Let's see. Other folks who dialed in, I'll give out the number again. 605-313-5164. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Star six one. Again, we'll be here on Tuesday. Dr. Gerald Horn, noted historian down in the Texas area. Uh, we read his bio not that long ago. He should be with us. Looking forward to hearing from him Tuesday. Other folks we missed totally. Proceed. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to say that um, Dr. Russell used to say that 
um, the denial of racism is essential to its maintenance. And Mine is breaking up a little bit. Your line is breaking up. I'm not sure if you're on a speakerphone or headset or anything, but if maybe you could get closer and then speak up a little bit. Oh, sorry about that. I was just saying that Dr. Wilson used to say that denial of racism is essential to its maintenance. And that she was, you know, she was always so on point with stuff like that. And that one, that was really on point. The denial of racism is essential to its maintenance. That's all I want to say. The grandsister, she used to say that frequently. I was just going back listening to some of her older uh, talks that she gave her visits to the cows. And she mentioned that she talked about that denial of racism being essential to its maintenance that we have to talk about it. We have to go into a therapy session. You got to deny racism, white supremacy. That is very, very common. Uh, Let's see other folks who dialed in. uh, If you have comments to share, uh, line should be open. While folks are getting their thoughts together, I will give out my recommendation again. I know uh, July 4th is coming. I'm not sure. I guess I have two. I almost included it, but I failed. There was so much. They had a report where they said there has been an increase in firecracker activity. I think I mentioned it a few weeks back because I had been hearing it here. I was concerned because they've been having all the rowdiness with the uh, so-called protests, rioting and all the rest of that. And I said, man, you know, I guess it could be fireworks. It's close to so-called Fourth of July and all that. But, man, I've seen armed white people out and about here, too. It could be gunfire. Like, I would be very cool with let's not have fireworks this year. Like, we don't need that. We're not doing any of those get togethers and all that stuff. We still got the Rona. Like, why not no fireworks this year? Uh, But I did look and they said that that has been nationwide uh, with a reported increase in fireworks activity and early the battle simulation. We got guns and then the simulation of gunfire. That aside, I wouldn't participate in any of that either. That aside, if they are throwing some sort of 4th of July jamboree in your workplace or what have you, I would not participate and it would be raised as a safety concern. I know we've had that type of nonsense uh, in places where I worked for some time. No way. Uh, And I I would just raise it as a question. Like, is this the best time to have a picnic get together? Raise it as a question with health guidelines, even because in some places I know they have got to have health guidelines that would say, oh, no, we shouldn't even be doing anything like that. Like and then I would even ask if they are insistent on having such a gathering, then I would ask if you can make it optional and then see if you can get out of it that way. Because, I mean, come on hanging out together grilling hot dogs in this environment come on Uh, let's see Uh, other folks that are with us folks are spectating certainly should not be spectating under these times with all of the man craziness uh, that is happening I know a number of folks Florida and California and Texas you all are in areas where they're reporting 
these extraordinary surges uh, in the virus. I think that alone uh, just kind of updating to see kind of if they're putting in new restrictions or talking about a second shutdown, because I know they've been talking about that in some areas uh, that they might have to do the whole, you know, closing all kinds of things back down and you have to shelter in place uh, if things continue to be uh, the metaphor out of hand if it continues to be a rise in the number of COVID-19 cases uh, in specific states. I don't think Washington is in that group uh, as of this moment on Saturday, but I'll kind of have to look again. But I know Florida and California, Texas, Michigan, it's been quite a few. I think uh, Mississippi might be there. I have to double check about Mississippi, but it's been quite a few uh, of states that are are struggling uh, with all of that right now. So yeah, if you're in one of those areas, I hope you are taking it serious. Number one, they said that in the clip that they didn't, uh, at least in Washington state, they hadn't seen any evidence that the protests were spreading the virus. It was young, probably white people going to parties and spreading things. So hopefully take it serious. Try to stay at home if you can wash your hands and not be in, you know, big settings, not be around people if you can help it. But I would definitely uh, take it seriously. Take as much space uh, as you possibly can and stay safe. That's it. While folks are getting their thoughts together, some of the folks that we've missed totally, I'll check in uh, with Kamau in Norway. Did you have additional thoughts that you wanted to share? It's, uh, I guess, a little after uh, 5 a.m. in Norway, morning time there. If you are still with us, if you wanted to finish your thought while we're waiting for other folks to get their comments to share. Uh oh, did we miss Kamal? Might have stepped out. Might have missed Kamal. Didn't know if we were going to be able to have him for the whole program. Not even sure if I would be getting up at whatever it would have to be, 4 a.m. or whatever, to hang out and share uh, on any program, racism, white supremacy or not. That's why the Global Sunday Talk program is earlier in the day so that we can easily accommodate folks who are in different parts of the world and they don't have to be all stringed and up at the crack of dawn or middle of the night to come in and try to share. Global Sunday Talk, we should be having the July July edition uh, coming up soon here about all the protests and the election and all the rest of it. Let's see. Uh, Still see other folks who are Hanging out, I guess, if you need to get to a spot where you are able to share, we'll check in and hear from all of that down the road as well. Uh, The book club I saw today, I already had in mind the audio segment that I wanted to share. We're reading Einstein on race and racism. Direct recommendation from Dr. Frances Cress Welsing. She said it on this year program, I think more than once, Uh, but we're reading it. We're like, hmm a third of the way, maybe a little bit further uh, through the book. And they spent a lot of time talking about Princeton uh, when Einstein, when he came from Germany, uh, Nazi Germany uh, to the U.S., he went to Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, And so he's teaching, doing his research on their campus. And they give a lot of the historical context in the book about the campus and Woodrow Wilson, who was a former president of the United States and president at Princeton University. Uh, and a staunch white supremacist that did lots to make sure that no black people were students at Princeton and all the rest of it. Uh, But they talk about that history in the book before they get to Einstein and Princeton. They just announced today that they're taking Woodrow Wilson's name off of the building uh, at the campus. They're going to rename it as 
something else. I think it's going to get like a temporary name uh, for now, and then it'll have a permanent name, permanent name change moving forward. And they cited explicitly his racist views and politics as to why they were doing this. But, and I think they had tried to do this before. I think this had come up in like 2016, uh, 2015, where they would try to do this then. And, you know, they decided against, and he's still a hero and blah, blah, blah. And then they switched up. And in fact, I saw just as we were about to go live, they have John Wayne Airport in California, and they're looking at changing the name there. He was also someone who was like explicitly white supremacist and like, oh, man, we might have to take them. We might not can have John Wayne Airport anymore. And why I saw a number of white people were fuming, uh, especially white males like you have got to be serious. You can't be serious. The Duke hits his airport. All that he's given us. He's got a star in Hollywood and all the rest of it. So. <sighs> Times are changing, they say. Uh, Kamau in Norway, did you rejoin us? Did you want to get your additional thoughts in? Yes. Can you hear me? Crystal clear, sir. Perfect. I just had a problem with Skype. I had to cancel the app and restart. So I actually asked for two minutes because I just remembered something I read yesterday. During, um, in, in Jamaica, uh, the first uh, Africans got were taken there by the Spanish in about 1509. And then you had um, emancipation about 1883. And, and there were constant rebellions, and you had many of the Maroons establishing her own towns and so on until they made peace treaties and so on. But during these 380 years in Jamaica, by the premise, refined itself. And um, they developed codes of how to treat slaves and so on, and how to improve um, their mistreatment of black people. And I see the same thing happening in um, the states. Before emancipation, they had um, really increased the quality of how they conducted their business. And I see these tearing down of statues and changing names and trying to force um, a more refined behavior of white supremacy as, you know, almost as an emancipation act where white supremacy is going through a refinement and um, they've already achieved some of the goals of their last cycle. And now they're going to insist that um, white supremacy, that all white people who practice racism have to be more refined. So, um, and us victims who might be confused might think that it is an improvement, but in reality, I mean, they've got the LGBT thing down pat, and um, yeah, so I just think a lot of refinement has already occurred um, in our mistreatment, and now they want to um, refine, make white supremacy even more invisible. And my original point I wanted to make was that um, I've been reading the, the destruction, no, the How Europe Undeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney. And he, is, he earned a PhD at 24. He died at 38 in Guyana. And his book is really well written. But he speaks of socialism as being the solution for people 
non-white people around the world, and he considers racism as an offshoot from capitalism. I think that if he had lived for about 40 more years, that he might have revised his position. And I think that's something that's, um, that all of us should consider. All of us who have this understanding and are partially awake should try to live as long as we can so that we can um, really improve and refine our own understanding and our ability to share understand with, uh, with others. Thank you. Much obliged, Kamau, in Norway. Uh, there's so much confusion, too. Like, white people do so much racists do so much to promote confusion to get black people to to come to any conclusion other than the problem is white supremacy racism like no the problem is capitalism or you know anything else uh, that they'll come up with uh, as opposed to no it's the system of racism white supremacy white that's what it is but reading more important than watching television always great to uh, study uh, get more information worldwide study get more information uh, let's see other folks who are with us uh, if you if we have missed you totally have additional comments you would like to share the folks who had a hand up I guess that are waiting to get to a more comfortable location hopefully you'll get there be able to get your comments in at some point uh, during the broadcast uh, let's see Can I be heard? there's one Thomas in New York yes sir Yes, Gus. Good evening. Good evening to all the callers that are calling Norway. Um, yeah, the fireworks has been on an epic level. Um, I've never heard anything like this ever. And it started right around the time of the protest where everybody, for the first time ever in protest slash riots, uprising, I saw people using fireworks. And it was like the next day I went outside and it was, it was just everywhere. Uh, to the point where the day after the Juneteenth was never celebrated in New York ever. Like, these, it was so, I mean, it, they were shooting Roman candles at each other. Um, it, police just rolled past, and there's so much damage to the sidewalks and the streets from, because they come with heavy-duty stuff. Like, I've never seen this caliber, this level of fireworks before. We always have them, but not this professional grade stuff I'm seeing. Um, now, the, I, I listened to the Clinton play, um, and the, uh, about me with the guy with the horse. And um, I just wanted to say, I got the story from um, the New York Daily News paper, Thomas Tracy, um, on June 2nd, 2020. He wrote that story, and he was reporting on it, pretty much reassuring New Yorkers it wasn't a New York City cop force. It was a Chicago cop force, and it even had a clip of the video. That's where I got the video from, where the gentleman, the black male, says that he stole it from the police. So that's what I was reporting from. I yet to see the other story, but that's where I was reporting that story from. Um, now... As far as Facebook, I've never ever in my life logged on to Facebook or any other social media apps. <laughs> but um, if you get, um, what I'm finding is a lot of this stuff that they're doing, um, as far as they're calling it taking down groups, it's really them taking down a lot of conservative and um, 
um, or news websites. Um, not so much the group thing. They're using this as an excuse. And um, almost 90% of the websites they've taken down are either pro-Trump or anti-Democratic Party websites. So it's pretty much geared toward keeping the information very liberal um, in social media as it is in the news as well. Um, NASCAR, I think they're totally clowning black people. Uh, very refined racism they're practicing. Um, they couldn't start the NASCAR season in the midst of all of this uprising. And um, Aunt Mama has to change her name and speak to being named Black Lives Matter and have a crowd with 90,000 white people waving a Confederate flag. It wasn't going to work. <laughs> so they decided to... Um, no more waving the Confederate flag at NASCAR. No more playing old Dixie. Um, and um, the fans ha- are being put on notice. Um, you're, you're seeing how far they're going with all of the four show. Um, this is the clowning. You know, they're putting it in the news, riding around with um, the gentleman, um, holding hands on his car, um, all for show, all to let the fans know that these things are refine your racism a little bit. Um, even making a Black Lives Matter car, you know, just really refining it. Now, NASCAR driver Cal Lawson, he makes a racist comment, and the black male um, goes to his defense and, um, you know, has a teaching moment trying to teach a racist. Um, you know, and this is perfect for NASCAR right now. This is like, um, now, the noose put in the gentleman's garage, based off of coronavirus protocols, they said up to 30 to only 30 to 60 people have access to that garage. The garage was brand new. They said cameras are everywhere. We'll find out who did this. And then the next day they came out and said they're no longer investigating. So um, it makes me think um, this could have been a white supremacist who did it, or this could have just been more of them putting their fans on notice um, listen, you know, loose was found in this now, you know, you definitely can't do anything now, you know. Uh, I'm I'm just not sure, but NASCAR for sure is not um uh, trying to counter racism. Um it's a waste of time for in my opinion to try to take down these white people's statues. Um you know, I mean they've even gone as far as to paint them in the rainbow colors, um, which lets you know who's behind all this. Um the president needs to send in military force. Um, to Seattle, Gus. Uh, secession is punishable by death, according to the United States of America. Um, Chaz should be chopped down. This guy, Ra Simone, so-called Chaz chop leader, handing out black, uh, handing out AK-47s and AR-15s is a black male rap artist. I had to look him up. Like, what, what kind of music does he make in? He's trapping in Seattle. He's cooking up and selling cracks. He's gangbanging and shooting niggas in Seattle. I'm like, man, I, I didn't know all this happened in Seattle. Um, but either way, um, that's more fake than him being the leader of a rap, just this white rebellion. Um, police were responding to victims who were shot in that area, and they didn't let the police in. What happened to them um, having to do an investigation, having to collect evidence, controlling the crime scene? It's just total insurrection. Something needs to be done <laughs> immediately. Um, and um, lastly, um, I just want to say I'm not advocating for the um, 
New York Daily News at all. I don't find them to be the most accurate source of information. But, it, you know, based off of the premises, and when they put that story out, it seems pretty authentic. Um, until I saw more information, I could definitely see that's not a police force. But, at, well, based off of what I had at that time, that's what it looked like. Much obliged, uh, Thomas in New York, the, the black male alleged horsey. That's 2020 is so wild. We are talking about a horse theme. <laughs> they don't even have horse themes anymore. Like it's 2020. We got the Rona. Kobe Bryant died. We got all these protests. And then do we have a horse thief too? Like, whoo, what a year. The alleged horse thief, uh, Adam Hollingsworth is his name, uh, WGN, which is the Chicago uh, local station. Uh, they interviewed him after he was falsely accused so they could talk to him about, you know, no, you did not steal a horse. You actually own five horses. Wow. Okay. You've been on the protest and all that. I posted the interview that he did with WGN and they had pictures of where his vehicle was vandalized. You horse thief. What are you doing? Niggers out here stealing horses. And it's not funny because I'd be really upset if my house had been vandalized. And I mean, that's dangerous. Like white people value animals way more than niggers like dogs, horses, turtles, squirrels. That's a whole book, uh, niggers and squirrels in the uh, archives. But I mean, yeah, that's kind of dangerous. I'm sure he felt dangerous. He said the interview, WGN, I posted it. But yeah, his name, Adam Hollingsworth. Uh, folks can check it out online. Lots of pictures, even pictures of his vandalized property. Uh, let's see. Other folks uh, who dialed in, if you have a hand up, <clears throat> excuse me, if you have a hand up commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Greetings. Greetings. Uh, I have, uh, thank you, Gus, and greetings to everyone. Uh, uh, all of the reports that are related to what's been going on uh, in the world, actually, uh, over the past month, has already have been given a general term attached to it. Uh, and what I hear is systematic racism. And uh, I think it's a very broad term. I think it's a broad term on on purpose uh, as opposed to racism, white supremacy, or as we have a guest uh, that is in Norway right now, global system of racism, white supremacy. White people have this understanding of accuracy, and I think it's done on purpose because the global uh, a term to be addressed as global system of racism, white supremacy would indict and hold every person that is racially classified as white as a suspect at least. Uh, and from my observations also, the, uh, the, uh, so-called opposing force, the force that is designed, supposedly designed to, uh, be against this quote unquote systematic racism is already been corrupted. Uh, and uh, my studies were based on 
just looking at uh, the uh, website that is listed as Black Lives Matter. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged. We had our caller in Norway was just talking about the difference in using the phrase systemic racism. You said systematic. Same thing, though. In uh, saying that, as opposed to system, the system of white supremacy racism. Uh, we just talked about that on the Global Sunday Talk uh, this past Sunday. And then the very next day, Dr. Martin Kevorkian, who is at the University of Texas, Austin, I just mentioned it with the documentary, uh, but he was on the program the very next day. He is an English professor, Ph.D. in English, in fact. And I, that was one of the first questions that I asked him. And he talked about the difference between those two phrases, systemic racism, system of white supremacy. Uh, caller in Norway, anything you want to add? Because that was, I thought, a really important point you made last week. Yeah, um, it, I think it's very proper to use Dr. Wilson's definition um, in its fullest and to, to give it out in its fullest form because I feel like in physics there's, when we have equations in physics, they're very accurate, they're very precise, and I feel like Dr. Wilson's definition is something that she's worked on for many years and that um, she has a very good reason for why the words are placed the way they are. So I would keep, so until I can do better, I will continue to use her definition. I, I, on a chat group, on Facebook group, someone um, tried to make an improvement on her definition. I believe they were from the some Moors group, and they wanted to include um, entities that you cannot see and uh, um, aliens. And things like that, and um, no, we have a tradition in Africa of those things being real. I think it, I so I, I was um, welcoming into her definition, but I meant I said until I become more versed in those things, then I will stick to Dr. Wilson's definition. So I made sure I didn't have any conflict with this person and allowed her to share her definition. One thing I wanted to, and you had a new point I had come across in the past uh, couple of days. I was speaking to someone about Camille Cosby's um, article, and um, he men- mentioned that um, in the 70s, 80s, nobody would have thought in the general public that Dr. Cosby, Mr. Cosby, would have been um, in jail right now. Impossible. Nobody would have thought that. Before even before the Cosby Show came out, and especially during, no one would have thought he would be in jail. It tends to happen. Um, same thing for Marcus Garvey. Nobody would have thought, probably, that he would have been. He would have died um, alone and unhappy. He made a suggestion that it's quite possible that twenty years from now um, we will have the same thing happening to someone that we people that we think of very highly and that black people look up to and feel very inspired by that it's quite likely that 20 to 30 years from now they might be in jail and or be discredited and he suggested that perhaps president obama 
might um, have the same fate, and perhaps even the Black Lives Matter movement might have the same fate. So for example, like um, the Black Panther Party or other movements, civil rights movements in the past. So that it it's, it follows the form that white supremacy will do this twenty to thirty years from now. I'm mute my line. Much obliged, caller in Norway. Uh, I think there's enough uh, disgust for President Obama uh, that there wouldn't be a whole lot of surprise if he got arrested or blamed because they they were blaming him for the mask shortage in some quarters here in the U.S. So uh, at least I wouldn't be surprised. I think other folks uh, probably wouldn't be too stunned if white people found some reason to indict President Obama or people connected to him. Uh, anytime before he departs the planet in physical form. Um, but yeah, that's such Mr. Fuller talks about that. They have such a extraordinary, extraordinarily successful record uh, of doing that. Uh, black people that they have allowed to be well-known, uh, allowed to accumulate some level of finance and then decide they're going to take all that back and maybe put them in greater confinement and have them be humiliated and disgraced. Uh, around the world they're very good at doing that sort of thing the only thing i was really thinking like they've done it so frequently now at this point it's like there's not really anybody that i think that highly of like oh my gosh this person is just so pristine in their reputation and all this like al sharpton (laughs) i don't know who's i don't exactly know who who is left at this like lebron james like they already hate him anyway like Nothing would surprise me uh, at this point, but you're absolutely correct. You know, just stay tuned. Uh, Number again is 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Please do not wait till the last minute if you have comments questions counter racist suggestions to offer uh we didn't really touch much on the virus i guess in the last few minutes folks that we missed make sure you share as well but uh if folks that particularly i guess if you're in the areas where they say the virus is is surging like i don't know what what are you thinking at this point are you thinking it's going to be a second shutdown are you preparing for a second shutdown like just that would be good as well because that at least in the States, uh, that is seeming like it's a problem. I guess, uh, Kamau, if you want to share what it's like in Norway, but here in the States, like, wow, like might be a second shutdown quick. We didn't even get out of the first wave. Technically still kind of stuck there. It seems for a lot of folks, uh, but other folks who either, if we missed you totally, if you have additional thoughts, proceed. May I be heard? Caller in Florida, one of these states where the virus is surging, they say. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to just the host, the listeners, and callers. Uh, in regards to the virus, uh, it is definitely intensifying. Uh, the county that I reside in has reached over 1,000. Uh, cases, but I'm in the uh, northern central part of Florida. Uh, but they, as far as I know, I know they were mentioning about the bars closing down again, and 
I'm even noticing that some white people that they are showing on the reports seem to be upset about it. And some said, oh, I already knew this was going to happen. Um, like some of the owners, things like that. Um, but they're talking about fining people $125 if they refuse to get a mask right. Okay, so if someone, um, I guess a law enforcement official or someone of that degree or that nature offers a mask and a person refuses it, then I guess they can uh, find them 125 just 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 like that so i it looks like that's being done just within the county so i don't know uh, what's going on in other counties so they're definitely becoming more strict uh more straight laced with the uh, ordinances uh the white arrogance i think um i think it's being put on display a little more uh there's one lady that was saying Hey, this this is just getting ridiculous. You know, I just want to sit and have a drink, and I want to talk to the person sitting next to me, like not taking it serious at all. Um, and as well as the reports on how they're saying that they switched the groups, um, I guess the risk groups. They're saying that the the main, I guess, median age is like 34, 35, or people in the younger areas, younger ages. Um, but I haven't heard the term disproportionate be used. All right. Um, so I'm thinking, could this be a term, another one of generalities where they are saying that a lot of white people are being adversely impacted, uh, at this very moment, because especially from the images that I'm seeing, it does look like it's a lot of a rebellious, um, entitled, uh, suspect the races going out just saying, hey, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm going to get on in this boat, show a whole bunch of skin. I got my beer in my hand. I got my red hat. All right. And I'm going to do what I want to do. So um, that's what I'm definitely noticing. And also with the uh, the segment where the black male, uh, they made sure they put in saying that he can breathe and they use the term sketchy. That's another one. Um, dark, uh, you take a lead pencil and you make dark lines. All right. So you use the term sketch. Now, I'll, you know, I use the term sketch because I'm an artist, but when you're applying it to when someone is uh, being suspicious or prone to criminality, that person is sketchy. Uh, and the term inflammatory was used as well. I agree they should use more direct language, racism, white supremacy. And thanks for allowing me to speak, Gus. Thanks. It's a inflammatory. <laughs> He's talking about slaughtering generations of black people. It was inflammatory. And again, they did have a black uh, sheriff, down chief uh, down in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. So Mm, that is tough. Probably tough. You know, now that I mean, now that is the power of the system of white supremacy, in my opinion. The chief is a black male, but even he can't come out and use the term racism. He can say it's inflammatory, disgusting, <laughs> despicable, violent. We can run that thesaurus down. Keep him rolling. 
Just skip the R section entirely. Find something else. Shameful. <laughs> Get pick them up in the S section. That is the power of white supremacy racism. You can't even call it by name when that's clearly what this that's clearly the most accurate term for what we're talking about. Uh, $125 for a mask. Wow. Now they have a statewide uh, mask order here in Washington state. I'm not sure. I have to look again to see what the enforcement I've been out and about and I have not, I've seen enforcement officials, but I've not seen them stop anybody and, you know, shake them down about a mask or anything like that. So I don't know how stringently uh, it's being enforced in terms of police and, and all of that. Um, I would be curious about that. Like how strict, you know, are they going to be, where are they going to be posted up? Like, are they just going to be hanging out in areas where it's black people and molesting them about a mask? Or are you going to be, you know, posted everywhere? I too have seen the same thing about white people. That's an important point about them not saying disproportionate. Cause I too, like all, in fact, when this first got serious in the States, like mid late March, they had specific reports and I think they were identifying white people explicitly and saying that these younger white people were being defiant and they were still going to the beaches and stuff and still taking trips because uh, it was spring break time and they had lots of photos with lots of white people and they were partying up and drinking out of the same class and doing shots off each other and all the normal you know goofiness uh, but it, they were at that time they were specifically calling out white people it's the same thing now, like the pictures that I've seen and parties and stuff that they're talking about It's generally not that I haven't seen any black people doing this too. Cause I have for sure, but generally I've seen a lot of pictures of young whites at the bars, at the pool, at the beach, partying it up, not social distancing, not taking this. I've seen lots of that. Like, yeah, that is something to pay attention to. Is it, are they, uh, I guess not highlighting that. Yes, it is now young white people are the plague and what's keeping this going or what has caused the resurgence surge, if you will. Uh, let's see, take it serious, take it serious. Uh, other folks, uh, anything else they wanted to make sure they share, get in. While we, we have about, well, a little less than 10 minutes left in the broadcast. If you have anything else, uh, I will say, I think the next book that we're going to do is White Dog. Now, there is no audio book, and I have done my, man, I have done my read for the year, so I'm definitely not reading it. But, man, I think we should read White Dog. Uh, the film is one of the best that I've ever seen in terms of racism, white supremacy. If you know, you, if they go into another shutdown and you have to, we might be me too. Uh, if we all have to do another shutdown and you got more time to sit around the house and fiddle, you've cleaned and got sufficient rest. You tried out some new recipes and all that. You've done some counter racist writing and it's all right. I, you know, I'll watch something for an hour maybe and then I'll, you know, figure out whatever else I'm going to do. White dog is worth a viewing. Uh, I came out in the eighties. It is about a, uh, white German shepherd uh, who has been trained to attack black people exclusively attack and kill black people exclusively and this white woman finds him 
she takes him home and he kills black people. He kills a few black people before they realize like, oh, this dog is, you know, rabbit or something. Yeah, we got to take him to get him trained. They're, they're supposed to kill him, but they take him to get him trained. So they go to an animal trainer and find out, oh, wow, this is, you know, they call it a white dog, a racist dog. He attacks black people. So they say, you should kill him. This is the second time. You should kill it. Just kill it. You can't train it. Can't rehabilitate him. Just kill it. Uh, and so a black trainer comes in, uh, played by Paul uh, Winfield. Uh, he was in the first Terminator. And he says, I'll, I'll train him or kill him. And it just goes from there with him trying to rehabilitate this racist white German shepherd. Excellent movie. Phenomenal metaphor for the dangerous folly of trying to rehabilitate racists it's just phenomenal one of the best in the business one of the best i've ever seen still uh so it got it became even yes sir just give me one second it became even better i found i knew it was a book long time ago i knew this book this movie is like almost 40 years old right so i didn't see it when it first came out i saw it after the cows came into existence then i saw it after i saw it then i find out oh wow this movie is based on a book it wasn't until I had told someone else, oh, you should watch this film. It's pretty good that I found, oh, wow, this book is based on a true story. Like the white guy, Romain Gary, who wrote this book, he comes to the States. He finds this dog that has been trained to hate black people, attack black people. He's like, wow. And so he's looking at this dog. And at the time, this is like 60s and 70s, the Black Panthers and all that. So he writes this book. So I'm even more intrigued because he talks about some of his experience talking here and what he saw and then finding this racist dog. Uh, but yeah, that is the, that is the neck of book. Uh, white dog just got to figure out a narrator because I'm not doing it. But man, if you have not seen the movie, it is a doozy. Uh, Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. I say if um hate to use the metaphor, but if there was any litmus test for how codified black people are acting uh in twenty twenty, I think the levels of black people I see on T V and um YouTube trying to teach white people um about racism, white supremacy is white people acting like they're learning something and sitting there listening attentively, I think it kind of shows me that we're not really ill or cold at all as a people. Uh, they don't need our help. Um, I was going to mention the um, NBA and other sports. I see uh, coronavirus. Um, it caused the end of the season, and they're trying to reboot the system. The season, um, July 30th, I believe, um not sure um if this is of uh, the greatest of ideas, um, uh, but you know, that's what they're doing. Uh and and I'm not sure if they're gonna go through with it. The players are kinda forced um to play. Um not not saying they're forced to play like you know, but due to the the contractual obligations they have, if they don't season does not end the owners have the ability to rip up the collective bargaining agreement and they, um, these $30, $40 million contracts could, you know, shrink. So um, if they don't play, they don't get to keep their um, contractual situation the same. Um, and, you know, so they're pretty much forced to play in that perspective. I heard in baseball they're going to let the um, 
so-called Latino people start on second base because they don't want them close to the first baseman and the base post. You're not there having you hit the ball and you just automatically go to second base. It's um, very interesting. I, I don't see them starting that. Um, football, I just don't see it. Um, 80,000-seat arena, uh, stadium rather. Um, now, um, uh, situation I'm dealing with as far as um, with my daughter, the way at college, and um, she was at home, uh, and um, they sent us something in the mail uh, saying, well, via email, saying that the dormitories due to coronavirus, they're going to um, not, the, the freshmen's families don't feel like the freshmen will be safe. So instead of sharing rooms, they're just going to split it off to make each room one room. And um, based off of that, they're only going to have dormitory space for freshmen. Uh, anyone sophomore, junior, senior has to find off-campus living arrangements. And then they followed up with that by saying, but don't worry about it because 90% of the classes are going to be offered online, so um, make sure you just take online classes. So it sounds to me like they're not even going to open colleges 100% this year, so I doubt we're even going to get college sports. So it's just very interesting uh, to see how this whole thing plays out. And um, I, I looked at the uh, – they, they offered – white people, but they offered a deal for students $70 a night at a hotel, you know. Uh, so you, you do the math with that, $490 every seven days. You know, like, that that's not – you know, I mean, for white people, that's nothing, you know. But for me, I can't – you know, that's $2,000. I mean, are you crazy? Like, but, you know, this is where it's come to. Uh, I'll mute my line. Thank you. Wow. It's going to be, man, I don't even know. It's just going to be chaos uh, figuring out, you know, what's going to be the case this fall because even just figuring out what's going to be the case now, what's July going to look like? Much less, you know, the ball, because they were saying that was when the second wave was supposed to be. Like, that's when flu season would normally come back around and all the rest. And who knows? Uh, just lots of confusion. Uh, for the whole year Uh, it's difficult for me to see any of the athletic sports even the professional ones coming back because I think they said like 16 NBA players tested positive and the college sports I think they've been saying the whole time that if class is not in session it would be hard to imagine having any of the athletics in session if the universities are closed so it's just difficult and I mean football period I just that's a lot of physical, close physical contact. Uh, if baseball is given, I mean, yeah, it's just difficult to see any of that anytime soon. Um, I think all it would take is one player to test positive and, you know, anybody else have any comments they want to make sure they get in before we wrap up. Yeah, we heard caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Oh, yes, sir. Just really quick. I just wanted to mention about the, like the monuments and the statues. I was thinking about that as well. And I think their skilled uh, race soldiers can utilize that to, uh, to get victims off of the focus of 
the people that are uh, committing the racist acts right now and are practicing white supremacy so they can say, well, see, look, we actually got this actual, like, tangible uh, statue or something that you can see, and it's it's been changed. See, look, you know, we got this done. And now I can see that easily um, having an effect on the uh, mentality of victims of racism and definitely uh, that's something to, uh, to make note about. So that's, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Unfortunately, I would agree. Uh, we heard that even in the Global Sunday Talk, uh, folks from all over the world kind of saying the same thing. It seemed like a lot of non-white people uh, are confused about what this system is, what it means to be white. Uh, and in that confusion, hey, we're taking down a few statues. Woo! Wow. We have got some white people who get it. Like, we, we are making progress and just not understanding like renaming a few buildings and things like these little symbolic gestures are not really changing anything practically substantially for black people like yeah that confusion is massive very massive oh I did want to say real quick uh, we'll get a quick word in from Thomas in New York as well the confusion in Seattle is extraordinary like the shooting they had this past weekend and having a, a shooting because I mean that area would have a lot of crime anyway uh, the Capitol Hill area is close to downtown uh, but I mean wow just <laughs> I told you when I went there uh, two weeks ago I said I'm not coming back down here anytime soon I felt like I could die in the next five minutes uh, it was so it was I have never felt more at danger in my time here in Seattle four more years uh, Thomas in New York I was going to mention, um, I was, if they actually, if they reported on, uh, I saw a report where a white male said he was gang raped in uh, the Chaz zone. Uh, he was held down and um, they ran a train on him, I guess. And um, also, uh, uh, I forgot the other point. But um, I just wanted to know if you heard about that. Oh, did you see the congressman in Wisconsin get um, allegedly beat up by the protesters trying to tear down a statue, and I hear he's a homosexual um, congressman. But just very, very odd those two things. You know, it, it, it's, like, a lot of these events is being a lot of LGBT, but to to hear this stuff is like, wow. You know, what are they doing in these protests? You know, that we don't know about. But have you heard about the the male being gang raped in the chat zone? Uh, for listeners, uh, Chaz is Capitol. Well, they probably know Seattle is international. They were talking about that on the BBC, but Capitol Hill is uh, maybe like, what, 10 minutes, five minutes from downtown where they do the tossing of the fish uh, with Pike Place Market. Uh, this is like the gay LGBTQ epicenter of Seattle. They have a lot of gay bars and clubs and resources. Uh, the gay, uh, pride parade, which would have been this week in Seattle, all those major festivities would have been right there. where They are protesting, uh, in the Capitol Hill autonomous zone, Chaz, as just stated. Uh, I did not hear about the gang rape and I have not, you know, followed, uh, all of it. Like the shenanigans, like when I went and personally saw things, that was all I needed to see. 
Uh, it's been a lot of white people. Like I'm not, I do not need to follow any of that. So I have not paid attention to the day-to-day reports and details. I know the mayor has ordered them to disperse and they said they're not going and, you know, whatever. Um, And the president, this will be a talking point for him until November, four more years. I did see uh, about the incident in Wisconsin, uh, where I believe they called the National Guard in. Uh, The state senator was uh, Tim Carpenter, a suspected race soldier. That looked a little suspicious to me. That video, it was also a lot of white people uh, who were out protesting also about a statue. uh, And they ran over allegedly to where uh, State Senator Carpenter was standing and filming allegedly. And you can see like three or four white people that look like a white woman was kind of leading the charge. And he allegedly gets shoved down. And then they have this kind of video that kind of shows him just kind of laying on the ground, but you don't see him get attacked or punched anything. You just see these white people kind of run towards the camera. And then they show footage of him on the ground, not moving and just kind of being there. So I don't know if that happened or not. They did call the national guard in regardless of whether it happened or not. It was a bunch of white people. Uh, So yeah, it's, it's all been a lot of just chaos and confusion. I'm not sure about if he classifies as LGBTQ, but yes, I did see the Wisconsin incident. Not that I've you know been following that every day either, but I did see that. Uh, and I think they called the national guard. I think that was a part of, you know, them calling in the national guard. I think they had some other incidents of property destruction and uh, scuffles with the police and that sort of thing. But yeah, I would not encourage being involved in any, any of those activities unruly street activity uh you could die in the next five seconds the gang rape maybe it happened maybe it didn't it wouldn't surprise me because i was right there and i said man i could die in the next five minutes that was my conclusion immediately and i have not been back since and i'm trying my best to avoid it i love tomorrow i would be right there at the freaking uh farmer's market but i am not going tomorrow (laughs) like uh We'll have to wait a little bit and check it out. I do because that the farmer's market is right in the intersection where the black male was shot uh, like three weeks ago or whatever. The farmer's market would be right there. You could walk about two blocks from that intersection and get blueberries and raspberries and all the rest of it. Not tomorrow. Anyway, uh, we will be here not tomorrow, but Tuesday, Dr. Gerald Horn. Uh, we'll discuss uh, probably do a little bit. He's written so much, you know, immense body of work. We'll probably do a little bit of time on Paul Robeson, a little bit of time uh, on the protests. Uh, some of his other work, he's man written so much. It'll be a hoot. Dr. Gerald Horn uh, have him this Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. With that, much obliged for folks uh, who tuned in. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. I will say again. Lots of dangers out there right now. The primary is racism, white supremacy. This is not a good time to be just gallivanting and out in public, joyriding or whatever it is. Take this really serious. Uh, We are not trying to be in any sort of altercations with white people. If it's some sort of road rage uh, incident or someone is trying to uh, confront you, it is all about getting out of that area. There is no what they call it. Uh, saving face I got some sort of dignity that I'm trying to preserve or display none of that the thinking should be just what I said I could die in the next five minutes 
enforcement officials might arrive. This white person might have a gun. This might worsen. This white person uh, might be accompanied by four, five, ten other white people who all have guns, or maybe half of them have guns. You just don't know. Uh, it is way too much chaos on the planet right now uh, to be going out and getting involved in skirmishes or confrontations that you didn't initiate and you didn't plan on. It is all about let me get out of here as quickly as possible. Uh, be alert. Try to avoid all that if you can. Be an alert to kind of seeing if it looks like it's going to be dangerous and avoiding situations where you know it's going to be alcohol or a lot of people and that. To events where it's likely to be conflict I wouldn't be there to begin with all of that said sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy let us preserve our brain computers as best we can under conditions of total white terrorism in addition to being sober let's be buckled I just said shouldn't be doing a whole lot of going out we should be staying in the house but if you got to go out you are super alert anything looks awry out of there but if you're going out you are buckled up you are sober you got your mask whatever else Uh, and if you are driving you are not on the cell phone Uh, Again, just trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no. And there are a lot of race soldiers got their gun, no badge, but they got that equalizer. Be mindful of that. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.